This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next novel, the sixth novel in the James Reese Terminal List series, Only the Dead, hits shelves this spring. Go to officialjackcar.com, click on Only the Dead for a sneak peek and to pre-order. My guest today is my friend, Nick Norris. Nick is a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, went to the SEAL teams, combat veteran, and now works with a group called Veteran Solutions. You can go to vetssolutions.com. Org, and their mission is to end veteran suicide by providing resources, research, and advocacy for U.S. military veterans seeking psychedelic-assisted therapies for TBI, PTSD, addiction, and other health conditions. We go pretty deep on this podcast, so now, without further ado, here's my friend, Nick Norris. Nick, what's up, buddy? How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. How are you? I couldn't be better, my friend. And it's good to see you. I mean, uh, yeah, nothing's changed up here since the last time you passed through a few months ago. It's still complete chaos, uh, which is awesome. But, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, yeah, things moving, moving right along. Are you in San Diego? Is this the uh, is this the uh, the podcast studio in your home? Yeah, this is one of my one of my partner's uh, studios. He's like a musician, so like people. I was gonna ask you about it. that. I was like, "What's going on back there?" <laughs> yeah, there's like, a, I mean, if I move my computer around, I don't want to screw up everything. But like, you could see he has like guitars everywhere and like this massive keyboard and stuff like that. So definitely not me. I am not a musician. No. I wish I was, but you play it all. Uh, I I don't, man. I like I would love to. No. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm capable of it if I really put my, my head to it, but, uh, I don't think I've ever applied myself. I know it's such a great skill set. We tell our little guy he's in, uh, he takes violin at school right now. They have to take an instrument. They get to choose like cello, violin, something like sure. that, different things. But, uh, man, we're, my wife and I tell him like, you've got to, got to get on that guitar. Like you'll thank, you'll thank us later. Trust us. I know. And dude, and guitars <laughs> like an easier instrument to like yeah. a stringed instruments, like easier to pick up and, um, learn i mean i had friends recently tell me or a friend that's a musician say that like you definitely could pick it up you know it's doable yeah it's just way easier when you're a kid right you just like absorb everything yeah no i think so our daughter plays she uh she got a guitar for christmas she asked for a nice guitar for christmas so that's what she got um but uh, back in san diego we had somebody would come to the house and this super awesome guy and he they'd play and uh yeah dude so i walk by her her room every now and again when she's when she's playing just uh you know it's, it's pretty cool pretty cool to hear you know it's awesome my my niece uh my little brother's daughter uh is a musician like sings plays guitar and is like amazing i i was out there a couple of years ago in colorado with them and just blew me away that you know she could she could crank on that thing yeah. the way that she does it's so cool it is so cool and look at all this i got all my protect stuff here look at that i know you can't uh, see all of it, <laughs> have it all, all right here bam got it so we can talk about all that stuff but before we get to protect look at that right here uh rocking it's not i don't have the hydration in here right now or the energy i have the coffee this morning in here but, Bro, uh, I'm yeah. I'm drinking coffee this morning as well. So trust me, I'm I'm a coffee person in the morning. Nice, but I've been rocking the hydration. I've been rocking the hydration. Um, awesome, love the flavors, and uh, that stuff's been keeping me keeping me going. You know, because I tend to get books and I don't 
don't take a break. I just sit there and I just grind, you know, I don't have the alarm that like buzzes that tells me every hour to get up and, and <laughs> squats. Cause it's like, that's an interruption even, you know, for me, for writing, I'm like just in it and I'm just typing away and going, going. And I look up in like six hours has passed and I haven't even, yeah. moved. Like my legs have not stretched or moved. I know it's not healthy, <laughs> but it gets the books done, you know? Um, did you, have, did you lock yourself away in, in your little cabin again? I did, but then uh, I realized that I was going to be locked away for too long. And I was just yeah. like, you know what? I'm coming back, back home. And I know there's going to be interruptions. And now you saw the new place. So it's a little bit more spread out. So I can sure. mitigate a little bit of that. Still not the same as being away in a separate location where there's no right. chance of interruption. But, yeah. uh, you know, hey, um, got to gotta find that balance. Can't go away in the cave for three months. Do I have a deployment? And, uh, and yeah, bro. stuff, you know, so I just... Um, this year is my my goal, and I think I said this last year as well. Uh, I was going to get more organized, and I did, but more projects came on. So it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like the exact <laughs> same year as the previous that I just organized going into a new year. It was yeah, I got a little more organized, but a ton of new projects came on. They're going to be announced soon, and so it just kept everything chaos, which is great. I mean, it's great yeah. to have, but I should probably stand up every hour and do like ten squats or something. Probably good for you. <laughs> oh man! Well, let's dive in here. What's a uh, path to the SEAL teams, man? We're, let's uh, do that. So we, I mean, we uh, we knew each other in the SEAL teams. We've stayed in touch over the years, and so let's do the the path to the academy. Really, yeah, dude. And what was okay? That, yeah, uh, what was yeah that for me, man? For you? Yeah, growing up, do you did you know you were going to go into the military? And if you did, did you know it was the Navy? And if you knew it was the Navy, did you know it was the SEAL teams? Or what was uh, what was your path? Yeah. growing up, at, yeah. through high school, yeah. and the academy. Well, dude, I, I, so I think I shared this with Andy Stump, uh, a bit and, you know, cause he asked me like, when did you, when did you know that you wanted to go into the SEAL teams? Uh, cause it really, for me, it was all about going into the SEAL teams. Like I, I, I had a friend of mine named Mike Hurley, uh, who I was, I went to grade school with and Mike was, Mike ended up serving in the Marine Corps, but he was like way into the military, right? He was like one of those guys, like, I mean, I'm sure all of us had like the friend that was like way into the military, like growing up. I think that um, was me. I, yeah, it probably sometimes, most of the time it's like one of us, right? Yeah. But it it was not me. I, I like knew nothing about it. Like my grade school uh, experience prior to meeting Mike was like, I was kind of a dork, dude. Like I literally was like, I went to like a ma gifted magnet school, like focused what is, what on is education. That? What's, like, what's a, a magnet school? It was like in Chicago, I think it was like an accelerated public school. And, and it wasn't because I was smart. It's because I think I worked really hard and like, I just like accelerated myself, but I, I wasn't an athlete. I was literally, you know, focused a lot on like academics and all that. And then, you know, fast forward to like seventh and eighth grade, I transferred to the local uh, Catholic school. So like we have, a, I grew up in the South side of Chicago Catholic parishes, you know, all kind of blue collared workers. And, uh, I went to the local Catholic school. I met Mike and Mike was way into the Marine Corps and the military. I had just started getting into like working out. My dad really was a driving force in kind of self-discipline and motivation. And, and he was way into physical fitness. So, oh, really? what I do? Do? uh, so my dad was, a, my dad was a firefighter and, you know, he had served in Vietnam um, and he played college football. Uh, he was a fullback kind of, so, you know, always an athlete, always into kind of like physical fitness and like self-discipline. And, uh, you know, he got me into it. So at like seventh and eighth grade, I was starting to do push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and all the, the basic uh, body weight calisthenics. 
and uh, yeah, did did he go to college after Vietnam or did he go to college before Vietnam? Uh, he went to college before Vietnam and he ended up dropping out. He played football for like a year and then, you know, he would tell you my, my dad has passed away since, but, uh, he would, he would have told you that him in school didn't mesh. He really only went to school because he liked playing football. Um, so he ended up going for like a year, dropped out and then ended up just, uh, you know, basically signing up instead of getting drafted. Okay. Yep. But, uh, and what, Um, so, uh, he drove an ambulance uh, in Da Nang in Vietnam. So he was in the army um, and, and, you know, never saw kind of like heavy combat or anything, um, but, you know, spent his time over there. And, you know, I, I, I think I had that influence. I knew my dad was in the military for a little while. And then he went into the fire department and, you know, similar camaraderie, right, with the yeah. fire department. So I got exposure to that growing up, you know, always uh-huh. going to the firehouse with the de- my dad and then. You know, hanging out with his friends and working out and and that. So you know, yeah. it, you know, it probably Chicago. That's old school hardcore right there. Totally, you know? totally, man. Yes, that is wild. Did he talk to you about Vietnam or just were you just kind of aware that he was there in this place called Da Nang and he drove an ambulance or did he did he talk about that experience uh, and did it encourage you to down your path or was it just like oh my dad was in the military he's a firefighter mm-hmm. now and I'm I'm in high school doing or I'm doing my gifted uh, math yeah program. yeah. No, dude. So he never really, I mean, he always was very like, he, he would glance over it. Um, and we, he had a cousin, um, we have a cousin that served and it was actually like a forward observer. So he saw some heavy combat in Vietnam and even he wouldn't really talk about it. And, and I, I kind of, my exposure, and I don't know about you, but you know, my, the exposure to the guys that were Vietnam vets in my life, a, a lot of them are quiet and they didn't talk about it. And you know, frankly, I think it's because, you know, it was, I don't know, man, it was like stigmatized, right? Like they were, they weren't always encouraged to share or by sharing their experiences, it kind of cast them in some negative light. So uh, unfortunately, like I was always super curious, man. Like I loved it, dude. I, I played paintball as a kid, like dressed up in camo, you know, I, I played, you know, guns like running around the neighborhood. So like I was enthralled with like the concept of going into the military. Yeah. Um, and I probably pride as a kid, but you know, it was kind of like, you know, never really got exposure to it until much later. Right. I mean, um, you know, meeting my friend, Mike, and, you know, he told me about the Marine Corps and then ultimately the SEAL teams. He mentioned Rogue Warrior and Richard Marcinko and, uh, yeah, I think in like seventh grade, that was like the, that was the the point in my life where I'm like, you know what, the SEAL teams seem really cool and really difficult, so I I'm gonna target that nice. as like a goal, and and it kind of became like a personal kind of challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I, I've spoke about this before, but it's kind of it morphed over time, right? Like that led me to the Naval Academy only because my parents wanted me to go to school, and it gave me the best shot of actually making a, uh, giving giving me a shot at the SEAL teams to go in as an officer. And then, you know, when I was at the Naval Academy, 9-11 happened and 9-11 changed my perspective because obviously, you know, the guys that were graduating were now going to war and it, you know, kind of caused some soul searching, right? It no longer was about, hey, am, am I going to do this because I think it's a challenge and I'm going to see if I can, I'm tough enough to go through BUDS or am I going to do this because I'm prepared to lead men in combat and, you know, potentially, you know, pay the ultimate sacrifice. And, uh, 
you know, that, that was very, it was very pivotal mm -hmm. in my life as a mindset shift. And, you know, had, you know, I, I may obviously made the commitment and competed and then went to buds and, you know, the rest is history. How did you even uh, get on the Naval Academy track? Like, uh, was there somebody that suggested it to you while you were in high school or uh, how did you find out about it and then decide to go that route? Did you apply other places and then decide to go yeah. to the Academy or what is, what was that, uh, that path and that process like? Yeah. So I, uh, we had a balloon gold officer in the neighborhood. His name was Jerry Lewis. So um, like in your actual neighborhood, like really close. Cause in court, yeah, so, you know, obviously, you know, you throw a football and you hit one of those guys, but totally other places around the country, maybe not so much, but you had that one yeah. guy in your neighborhood. So for those listening, that's kind of like a, like a liaison kind of to the, uh, to, to the, academy. Yes. is that right? Former, yeah. a former, uh, a person who's graduated from the Academy most of the time. Well, Jer Jerry was, uh, retired enlisted, uh, oh, okay. so Navy it's just somebody guy. from the Navy that, that can do this, be this liaison between kids that want to go to the Academy and the Academy. Is that right? Yeah. Just, yeah. He was just a wonderful, I mean, love the Navy, love the military. And he just saw it as an opportunity to really impact change in young people's lives. So he became a blue and gold officer and that's what they have at the Naval Academy. They have these blue and gold officers that are just like shotgun throughout the country to be a liaison for, for kids that are interested. Um, so does, yeah. Does West Point I, have that, do you know? Yeah, I'm sure all the service academies have all. like the they have like these interfaces with yeah. with people that are interested. But I, yeah, I you know talked to Jerry. Uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be a SEAL. I mean, I think anybody that I was went to high school with could tell you that. You know, I was always focused on being a SEAL. I mean, I wrestled specifically because I knew that was the best thing for self discipline and and motivation and train me to to kind of be prepared. Okay. Um, and then, you know, with I guess with, with kind of the track from there, you know, I went to like summer seminar, which is like the summer camp uh, between junior and senior year. Okay. And then, uh, you know, applied to the Academy, didn't get in right away. Actually, I applied, I got in, but I couldn't get a nomination. So you, it requires a congressional nomination um, to be able to actually be accepted. So even if you get accepted, you still need the letter from, you know, a congressman, a senator um, or whatnot. And I didn't get that until the 11th hour. So I had actually applied to VMI and the Citadel uh, simultaneously and applied for like ROTC scholarships and was accepted to the Citadel. Uh, I, I also applied to Texas A&M and I got turned down. What? Um, yeah, dude. So I wasn't good enough for A&M. Uh, unfortunately, I spent the night with the core. Not put for my everybody. application in. Yeah, not for everybody, I guess. But uh, yeah, funny. I, I, I got into the Citadel was like ready to go to the Citadel. And then in the 11th hour, probably a month before induction day, uh, I got a letter from a congressman and he had given me, he decided to give me a, he actually had extra nominations. Like, so how many do they get? Is it based on how many people are in the, the state or the, how does that work? District? Yeah. So I, I think it's for, and I may be incorrect, but I believe it was like each congressman is given a set number of, of billets so they can have a certain number of people in the the conglomerate of service academies at any given time mm. so they're so they basically have to have people graduate or, or kind of move on in order to kind of recoup that billet and huh. like this particular congressman just didn't utilize all of the billets that he had so he had I've like extra billets. That, you know i've heard of people moving to a place yeah, where totally. a congressman has like an extra bill or something. I bet there's a whole little underground network. I'd probably online now you can go and find out like who has 
typically has extra bullets who built billets who's like not into it with the nominations as much and they have to get right. out. You know, like i bet there's a whole thing you can research now to find out because i remember when i was in high school hearing that oh you have to have be nominated by a congressman and i was like oh i don't know a congressman and that was about that was about yeah. all the thought i gave to it oh like, bro it's only if you know a congressman can you go there. You know, that's what you think. Yeah, I, 14, 15, 16, 17. You know, I knew zero, I knew zero congressmen or senators. Uh, so I think I wrote letters to every single one. See, that's that fantastic that you knew that you could do that. <laughs> I was just like that you had to like have a personal relationship. Like your parents had to like go to dinner together or drink beers together, watch football, yeah. play football, whatever. I thought I thought <laughs> like that kind of a thing, you know. And I'm like, yeah. oh, not me. Probably uh, helps, right? I mean, if you, yeah, if you well, have the sure personal relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sure doesn't hurt. But uh, that's wild. So who got you your, so you just wrote and they, there wasn't a personal connection there. They just, somebody in the office just opened it and, and said, Hey, uh, sir, Congressman, we got uh, four more billets left. You got these six guys. Uh, yeah. And he goes, ah, who do you recommend? And, you know, okay. Okay. Do those four. Yeah. Congressman. So uh, Congressman Bobby Rush was the Congressman that gave me my cool, nomination. Man. So uh, Congressman Rush uh, is probably out of out of Congress now, but I, I appreciate it. Obviously, it set me on my path. So, yeah. Um, yeah, afforded that opportunity and yeah, made it, it you know, was accepted the academy and uh, decided to go there rather than uh, the Citadel. And the Citadel would have been great, too. I had a cousin that flew F-14s in the Navy and he was a Citadel grad yeah. um, right as they started to transition uh, females into the Citadel. So, okay. um, he was kind of a mode. I mean, you talk about inspirations in that, you know, Danny Komar was my cousin at the Citadel and I looked up to Danny. Danny was a Navy guy and, you know, it, it definitely, uh, you know, set, set me in motion as well, you know, as yeah. my dad and other people. You know, I think a little little hidden gem out there that people don't know about as much because uh, you see the, the Army-Navy game. So everyone's like, OK, West Point, Annapolis, like people know that. And then they know there's an Air Force. You see them play football, you know, too. So you're kind of aware of those. But sure. uh, Merchant Marine Academy, I think, yep. is the one that kind of flies under the radar a little bit. Um, and there's multiple. Right. There's the state one yep. and the, the, I guess, national or federal, whatever they call it. Um, but you can there are billets from Merchant Marine Academy to the services as well to the branches. Is that, do you know, is that right? Yeah. So from yeah, there. 100, yeah. You basically, you're like a free agent, man. Yeah. I think, uh, you go to Merchant Marine Academy. Idea. Yeah. You can go wherever you want, right. You yeah. can, you could go to any of the, any of the services you could go to buds. I mean, I, I remember having yeah. guys, there's like two guys I know that, months. yeah, that kept, I was like, what you did, what? That's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and if you don't, you have a job getting out. I mean, yeah, you're on the high seas on the class three tanker or something. Uh, but totally skill set for the rest of your life uh that that you can you know you have a great living uh and you can parlay that into other things or you can go into the army navy air force marine corps i think uh yep. but that's pretty cool i think and maybe i don't know maybe it is as hard as the you know like maybe they have their plebe summer type thing and it's absolutely horrible but maybe they don't i don't even know i don't even know i don't know man i i think i think it is i think it's pretty comparable to the is other it? service academies yeah i think yeah. they do like I mean, it's probably very similar to like the Naval Academy, right? As far as uniform, I mean, uniforms and and kind of tradition and stuff. But yeah, they uh, it's definitely an underground option. Not yeah. a lot of people uh, even know about it. Yeah, I think it's a good one to explore. Anyway, if your people are they thinking like focused on the Naval Academy, focused on on uh, on West Point, like I think throw in Merchant Marine Academy in there into that mix as well. Just have have an option that's kind of in that same realm that gives you some of the same options when you graduate, which is kind totally. of totally. 
what was plebe summer like did you get up did you was it what you were expecting because you'd already been to the it uh your intro the like the uh, uh the summer before like what was that like for you yeah you know what it wasn't uh I would tell you the toughest thing for me was just, I mean, it's like any of us, right? If you go to boot camp or your bleep summer or whatever, I, uh, I think it was just kind of the shock of leaving like home yeah. and, and being in that. I mean, as far as being difficult, I mean, it was, it wasn't terrible. I think I, I, I was physically prepared to deal with, with the rigors of plebe summer, but uh, I do remember being kind of like, oh man, like I'm, I'm away from home for the first time and I'm, I'm living in a dorm and I'm not going to see anybody for, you know, months or, or whatever. So I think, yeah, I mean, it, I think it was like the start of being uh, prepared to just not, you know, to be away, right. To, yeah. to kind of spend long periods of time away from family. And, you know, that, that, uh, I, frankly, that was always the toughest part about, you know, any point in service for me is just the, the extended time away from, you know, the people that we love. So uh, yeah, that, that was my, that was my, my hurdle in plebe summer. Um, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. I think it- <laughs> and Annapolis is beautiful. Maybe not when you're going there getting yelled at and all that, but it, I mean, it's a beautiful campus. It's amazing up there. And the town is incredible. And I mean, what totally. a to go to, to go to school. Um, and I went, to, I went to West Point in, they invited me up in, gosh, I want to say January or February of 2005. So I got to, uh, cause it was, I just come out of Najaf in 2004 working with got a big army. So they asked me to come up and talk about, uh, special operations working with conventional forces. So I was in that, uh, where they have Eisenhower hall up there at West point, I think, and they're all in there and I'm on the stage and I got the whole tour and got to see how they feed all those people and how, you know, and how they do that. And, <laughs> and it was beautiful. It was stark. It was snowing. It was cold. Um, but the architecture up there was pretty impressive and it's probably, you know, not as cool when you're going there, but when you sure. wait or if you visit that place, it's pretty impressive. It's a pretty impressive there, spot with some great history. And um, yeah, the service academies is such a such a great option for people, I think. Yeah, I mean, they're very reminiscent of prisons, yeah. the architecture. <laughs> like and- prison. It does. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's a really cool museum up there. And when I went, it was, I think it was outside the gate. I think they pushed the gate little out for security reasons. There was a museum um, there that was really cool. Um, uh, it took you to all these battles throughout history and they had all these like big dioramas set up there. And it was, it was pretty cool to, to see that as well. But, uh, but yeah, Annapolis is a awesome town. Yeah. Awesome town that I didn't get to enjoy for four years. <laughs> you got to get out there as you got like to junior, senior year, right? Sophomore, junior, senior. Don't you, don't they open the gate for you a little bit? Yeah. You're like, uh, I, I, I equate it to being like a, as a senior at a service academy, you're like a a really lame freshman at a normal college. <laughs> like you get you get to wear you get to wear normal clothes on the weekends. You get to like drive your car. Uh, maybe yeah, it, you go it, it to like to be collar shirts with belts and stuff like that. Is it like like Marine? I mean, they have to go out. I mean, you have to. You could no, you could like wear. I think you could pretty much wear what you wanted. I mean, as long as you're out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of guys would like take off and go to like U Maryland and and party and and uh, you know other colleges that are in the area. Um, I, you know what, I did a bunch of adventure racing and like ultra running. So like I spent my weekends like doing that, and then I, I mean, I kind of was a dork, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I like, I, I did. didn't party much. I like, I literally like, I I got into rock climbing like big time. So I spent a lot of time at the gym in like Columbia, Maryland. Okay, and then uh, yeah, and then outdoors, man, just like be racing in Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, North Carolina. Um, a lot of time in like the the Blue Ridge Mountains and like Appalachia. So like, 
super cool. I mean, like I, that was like, I, some of my fondest memories of being at the Naval Academy weren't in Maryland. It was actually like in the middle of the woods in West Virginia, like getting lost at night with a, like a couple friends. Yeah. So that was, that was what I enjoyed. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That is cool. Um, and when, when you were there and nine 11 happened, are you a, what, what, um, what year are you? Are you a freshman, sophomore? What do you, uh, I was a sophomore. Yeah. I remember I was like walking to a uh, sophomore year. It's probably like a physics lab or something like that. And like, they have these kind of underground walkways below uh, Chauvinet and Michelson are like the two big halls. And I remember walking down the hallway, there's like a little common area underneath those two halls. Like it's just kind of like the, uh, the divider and they had, you know, TVs are on and you know, you know there was, you know, a, a one of the towers smoldering and like no one really knew no one saw the first impact. Right. Um, and I remember we went into lab and then, you know, we got called out, they canceled everything. I went out there and they actually, you know, we saw the second, uh, plane hit wow. and yeah. Yeah. At that point it was like game on. Right. I mean, that was definitely a pivotal moment. You know, you, you do a little def for me personally doing some soul searching to understand why I wanted to go down this path. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it definitely was not just about me at that point. And, you know, definitely made a, made a big difference in kind of the, the, the direction, the motivation to, to kind of pursue buds and then, you know, yeah. ultimately time in the teams. Yeah. And are you already in like a group that's training for buds, like getting ready to go to mini buds, that sort of thing? Are you in a, a group that's doing that sort of thing? Yeah. Oh, if you're going to get to go yet, but you're just like on the track, is that how that goes? Yeah. Like from inception, right. It's it, fairly competitive. You know, you get more billets, uh, per capita out of the Naval Academy to go to buds as an officer, mm. you know, it's probably equivalent, right? So like you get at the time it was like 16 guys from the Academy got an opportunity to go to buds as an officer. And mm. I think there was probably another 16 billets spread across OCS, ROTC. So like really good odds, but you had extremely high competition. You had a lot of guys that all wanted to be SEALs. So yeah, from inception, it was like, we did a bunch of these like in-house screeners to go to like Navy dive school between freshman and sophomore year, and then jump school at Benning between oh, sophomore and junior. Did you do those? So I, yeah, as a midshipman, I did dive school in Panama city. I did uh jump school at Benning as a midshipman. So you wow. get treated like complete dirt. Yeah. Uh, by everybody, by like the privates that are like in the uh -huh. army, like you're, you're like lower than, yeah. than low. And uh -huh. then, and then you do like mini buds, uh, between junior and senior year. And uh -huh. yeah, so constant competition. I mean, I, it was awesome. Uh, I mean, I would say like most of the guys that I did that stuff with consistently and the guys that ended up like kind of qualifying to do those summer training blocks, uh, -huh. uh ultimately became the guys that ended up going, uh, to buds and, you know, I think our class was like, I think we were one, almost a hundred percent, uh, pass rate and buds. We had one guy who got phenomenal athlete, uh, had got medically dropped because of some, some issues out of his control, but, um, everybody else made it through. Um, so the selection within school when I was there was, uh, you know, very proficient at, at making sure the right guys got, got an opportunity to go. Yeah. Did, uh, did you do a summer cruise, like a regular summer cruise or was mini buds your summer yeah. cruise and was jump school your summer cruise or did you do actual summer cruise on a ship with? Uh, oh, oh yeah, dude. I, I spent, uh, 
a month on the it was the USS uh, Rainier, which was AOE seven, and I think they all became USNS ships, but uh, it, which is an oiler, which is basically the same length as like an aircraft carrier, except oh, wow. there's like I, I don't know four hundred people on it instead of thousands. Oh. No, so man. it was it was actually kind of awesome. I mean, yeah. as awesome That's as people. being on a a ship can be, like uh, right, I basically like. You, I worked out, I hung out with a bunch of enlisted guys on the, on the oiler, like figured out what they did. And then, uh, we, I mean, it was out of, uh, Bahrain. So it was oh, all wow. in the, in the Gulf. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, that was college. You're flying to Bahrain, you're getting on a ship and totally. I mean, yeah, it, which is cool. Yeah. So my only exposure to like kind of the surface Navy was between junior and senior year at the Academy. I went out and spent time on a, on an oiler. Um, and then after that, I think I, maybe I touched like the deck of a ship doing like i don't know vbss or like you know helo born vbss like off a carrier during a j set or something but that's it (laughs) oh man that is pretty wild how long was that we were out there for a month with those guys are they out for a few days and come back or a week or are they just out there until they need to refuel or something we so we actually were like yeah people are gonna like laugh if you were like a surface uh navy guy you'd like laugh but we were like we were at sea for an entire month crazy uh <laughs> but i mean like as a midshipman we were expecting yeah. to kind of go in go in and come out but okay. i think because the coal got hit um just prior to that like just prior to the yeah 2000 october 2000 right. yeah so like in and this would have been 2002 mm-hmm. so all their protocol for like going in and refueling especially over in the middle east was like super locked down so like we never we we were in Bahrain like to board the ship and then to leave the ship like we got we got uh heloed off the ship and then like flown back to to the states and that's too bad and then yeah so no, yeah not terrible at all nice nice so then and how was many buds for you and is it in a week how long was many buds I think when we did it yeah it was like uh it was like a two week block it was like a week a week of like doing you know, boats and logs, and then a week of like, you're at a team. I think we, so I think we, we attached to like, I don't know, there were some guys, I think JOs from SEAL Team 3, and I think 3 had just come back from Afghanistan, at least the guys that were, uh, it was like the first pump in like, oh, those guys were on like the O one deployment. Mm -hmm. And uh, we interfaced with them, I think maybe shot a little bit or something and then left. But it was, it was more of just like, getting beat up right it's just like everything was selection from like freshman year at school all the way until you finish buds yeah that's oh, well and then uh do you remember who your uh, graduation speakers were did you have anybody big come down um because it's after september 11th and uh who did you who did you, you remember what any of those guys yeah. said so i th- i think ours was uh it was at the time i think it was commander or captain pibus but okay. ultimately a- admiral pibus was uh was our grad speaker. Okay. So I graduated with two, four, seven. And, uh, that would have been, oh, not, not, been buds, like, not buds, but, um, Academy. Oh, Donald Rumsfeld. That's what I mean. Our, yeah. I yeah, figured they yeah, had some big like, names yeah. come to the, uh, yeah, <laughs> they had some big names come to the academies, especially during that time to give those, you know, graduation, uh, speeches. So you had Rumsfeld yep. for years. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Rumsfeld. I have, I have a picture shaking Rumsfeld's hand oh, as wow. I cross the stage. Okay. So, God, do you remember anything that he said? (laughs) Uh, I actually remember like not. My memory is so terrible now, Jack. That like I uh, I don't remember pretty much anything. Okay, (laughs) okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> how about who, who, who was, uh, when you were a junior, did you still go to the graduations? Who did they have for when you were like a sophomore and junior come down? Do you remember? Um, I don't, you know what we had, uh, we had POTUS, I think maybe, so it would have been, uh, Bush maybe president of the United prior. States for those that are listening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that was the year before we graduated. I think, I yeah. think it was for the O2 class. Okay. Um, so that was a big one. Yeah. yeah and, they, and actually, and yeah. Hey, and I'm, you know, uh, I'm a big GW fan and, uh, I, you know, going to that one, I mean, it was amazing, but my, my wife's stepfather was a firefighter that was killed in the line of duty, um, in 2000 and, uh, man, 2001, I think when I was a sophomore, um, and they have a fallen firefighter society. And I remember going to a memorial service that they held every year in Maryland, uh, for fallen firefighters nationally. And, and it was, I mean, literally, I mean, this is a testament to him as an individual and like just a wonderful, caring, empathetic human being and leader. He, this was right after 9-11. So he had his hands full. And I remember he actually showed up to kind of that fallen firefighters memorial. So uh, super impactful. I, I remember, you know, him showing up and, you know, being able to kind of see him pay his uh respects to the families of yeah. of you know all those those people that had lost you know loved ones to yeah. you know the fire service yeah uh yeah so amazing human being wow. and i've actually i've connected with uh his sister on a podcast oh, and no then way. as a thank you i got a i got a picture of of gw and a cowboy hat nice that he sent over to me so. oh it's fantastic <laughs> oh man. And, uh, and so then you're off to buds and, uh, what's buds like for you? Do you have any, any issues as you're, you're going through? I mean, you've already been to dive school and at dive school, did they do a pool comp when you were in, in, uh, at the Academy? Was it a similar type of pool comp that they did down in, uh, Panama city that we do in buds? Yeah. yeah so the, the, the selection at school is, was more like kind of uh PJ selection. So it was mm -hmm. like snorkel sharking. So like you're, you, you know, they slowly rip like all your gear off, fins, masks, and they leave you with a single snorkel and, and your swim buddy. And you end up just doing laps like or like little loops around like the dive well at school. And then the instructors who are literally like upperclassmen, like people that are a year older than you are just like trying, they basically trying to drown you for like up to like a minute. That's fun. And uh, yeah, so it, very similar to like what the PJs <laughs> do for like their water, uh, like pool comp. Okay. And then- Going to Panama City, you're on all open circuit, right? And oh. I personally, I after doing that, like actually getting sharked with a snorkel, like pool comp with like open circuit, like scuba tanks was yeah. easy. Like okay. I literally like you could like you could ditch your shit. Yeah. You could like you could actually like if you could get um air in any capacity, you could take a breath. Okay. You know, you, know, you can put your stuff back on. Whereas yeah. like pool comp in second phase, like you only like if you ditch you're ditching it and you're going to the surface like there was no there was no ditching in pool comp where like you could ditch your shit fix your stuff and put your stuff back on so you like everything uh -huh. i don't i don't know if you remember like you always had to like kind of remedy the issue with the the tanks on your back and like your inhalation and exhalation oh, hose, i think like, ours were a little back. different cuz we had ours came off for sure uh like my tank came off for or tanks Plural came off for sure. And I remember for us, it was just going through the procedures. So it was like, I think yeah. air, air first, like, okay, 
get that problem solved first. Okay. Tanks can be off, you know, everything. It's a, it's a yard sale down there. You know, mask is gone. <laughs> fins are gone. You know, everything's gone. You've been like punched in the gut, you know, to get from air out of you or whatever. But it totally, is yeah. like going through that. It's like taking that second and then just going through those procedures to undo a knot or to get your air back on or whatever, whatever problem they gave you. Okay. Now I have air and now, okay, what do I can, what do I do? Okay. It's whatever, whatever that procedure was one, two, three, four, five to get everything back on check. And then can you keep going and then boom, hit you again. Um, yep. so, uh, so I, that's how I remember it anyway. And I, I passed the first time I was comfortable in the water. And I love that because that was like one of the only times other than what your drown proofing one, where you actually get to go yep. like mano a mano against the instructor. It's not just them yelling yeah. at you and telling you you're horrible and kicking sand in your face and all that sort of a thing. It's like, okay, it's us now. Um, let's yep. go. And I loved, cause I'd already been into jujitsu and everything. So when you're doing the, and that was early on. And, uh, so when you're doing the drown proofing and they take you to the bottom, I just like, hmm. Okay. Let the other person, yeah, you know, yeah, let us relax. I'm just going to hold on here and just, <laughs> cause they're working to get you down totally. and, uh, and they're, they're expending all that oxygen. You're just, <laughs> and eventually they're going to have to come back up. And when they did <laughs> just go, just get a little breath and then get a little closer to the side. And then they go yeah. <laughs> down again. Um, but that was like me against them. So I love that. Yep. And then I love pool comp cause I thought of it in a similar way. It's like me again. You're not like actually physically, you know, they're physically putting their hands on you, but it's still you against them. That's how I, how I looked at it. And that's so why I really like totally. that. But very few other times in buds, I can't even think of any. Do you get that sort of an interaction with an instructor? Like, okay, let's go, buddy. Maybe <laughs> life, life saving, life saving in first phase. That's what I mean, life saving. When I say drown proofing, I mean, I meant yeah, whatever the one where you're trying yeah. to get them to the side of the pool is that. That's life saving, life saving. Yeah, which which was typically like would attrite almost as many people as like. I mean, maybe not maybe not Hell Week, but it was like a big attrition yeah. number, right? Like guys yeah. would like. Guys, for the first time, would like that weren't comfortable in the water, like figured out that they weren't comfortable in the water, and that's the in, whole point. In that evolution. Yep, that's the whole <laughs> point. Like, cat, and then the second one where you get to figure that out is pool comp. First one is what, yep. uh, what drown, what, what drown proofing, life saving, yep. not tying, and then the underwater swim. I think. Yeah, underwater before. swim, and then you go into second phase, and then you you do all the o open circuit pool comp stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. those are I, the I, the two kind of gateways as far as being comfortable in the water. And I loved those. Like those were great. Yeah. Once again, because yeah. those are the I, only times I, in six months where you get to go kind of one on one I'm with, with an instructor. Yeah, yeah, I was. I I felt much better during those than like I was not a swimmer. Like I wrestled growing up. I was like a horrible swimmer with a, with no fins on. So like was not that great at like swimming on the surface but like mm. i spent a ton of time in preparation just holding my breath and getting comfortable underwater and being under uh, like being underwater holding my breath mm -hmm. uh so yeah th those evolutions like i actually enjoyed mm -hmm. i i'll say that our our pool comp uh in buds was definitely uh more de it was it definitely is step up from what we experienced down in panama city but, oh yeah um just different yeah yeah nice how was uh how was hell week uh, pretty good, man. I mean, I got, uh, I got like some, like, I guess pneumonia or like some like fluid in my lungs later in the week, but I ended up finishing the week. Uh, definitely thought I, I was like at risk. Like my O2 sat was like, not good. They had me like on the exercise bike on like really? day four or whatever, like testing it just to make sure I could go back out. But yeah, I was able to go back out. Um, made it, made it through, uh, hell week. And then ultimately like, made it through, uh, buds without getting medically rolled or, or performance rolled. So, uh, I 
some of that is skill and training and uh, some of it is just luck. Right. Yeah. You know, it didn't, because Get there's injured. a bunch of guys. I it, I mean, I went through in went through Hell Week in September, so it was a warmer Hell Week. But a lot of guys got stress fractures because they just run you. I mean, they, mm-hmm. but right? It's like if it's warmer and you can't attract people yeah. by making them cold, you just run them harder, like beat them <laughs> down. So like, yeah, that was I preferred that. I would rather get beat <laughs> than like get like put in the water for an extended period of time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you're fortunate enough, made it through and. No injuries. Yeah, I think being small uh, and light and yeah, probably running a lot prior yeah. to buds uh, probably helped me uh, remain kind of impervious to stress fractures because yeah. that seemed to be the thing that attracted a lot of guys in our class. Yeah. Did you, uh, I mean, you're not that short, but were you Smurf crew? Oh, dude, I'm super short. I know, I know you're short, but you're not like, <laughs> I mean, Aunt, you're not Andy as short would tell as you I, that I'm the shortest Navy SEAL in existence. That can't be true. So did you, okay, how about this then? Did you start? In the Smurf crew, I did. So, yeah, oh so wow! I, okay, then you are pretty. I, I was a Smurf, so but I yeah I was probably because sometimes you end up in the Smurf crew uh, because of attrition along the way, and like I started totally. in Boat Crew two and ended up in Boat Crew one pretty quick um, because of people quitting. Uh, so okay. for people listening, Boat Crew one is the taller. They they kind of line you up by height. Uh, so under the boat, you're uh, you can carry some some weight. You don't have a Smurf person, although they do mix it up every now and again just for fun. And they put like half Smurfs with half uh, oh, yeah. Boat Crew one just to see what what happens. Um, but uh, <laughs> but they line you up by height. So you're carrying some some weight on your head um, and you're all working as a team and that sort of a thing. But as people start to quit those, you know, depending on who quits that changes. So I went from boat yep. crew two or three, maybe I was even three. I can't even remember, but I started in two or two or three and then was one, I think the first night from people quitting, yeah. but you started well, in Smurf and stayed in Smurf. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, I was in the Smurf crew and maybe it fluctuated a little bit, but we had tried it. I remember like we had tried it like all the shortest people in the class first, like I, <laughs> the Smurf crew while, takes, like, they take some heavies. Oh bro. Yeah. Like, I think we, my boat crew was like different every single day like mm. leading up to hell week so oh, like wow. i might have not been in the shortest smurf boat crew from inception but uh, like okay. by the time we hit hell week i was like i was in the smurf crew and we stayed there and then i think i ultimately was like one of the shortest like i was not the shortest person in the class initially and then by the end of hell week i was like the shortest or oh, one wow. of the shortest oh i never so thought like, of yeah. you as super short i mean you're shorter than me but i never thought of you as super short um yeah I'm like five <laughs> i'm like five, maybe five six if i'm lucky like yeah. five five and a half five five and like three that. quarters um yeah. <laughs> but the smurf crew for those listening like they take it they because for whatever reason um i mean it's just i think it might be just it's just a little harder i mean you've got some you know bigger guys totally. that are now in you shape it, and me, you're bro. pushing you know and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Smurf crew is typically not in the front <laughs> on a lot of these God, things that we, you're doing. We, yeah, we we got we got hammered. Yeah, a lot. I, 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 it pays I to mean, be a so winner the, for those listening. So if you're like totally. boat crew one, boat crew two, boat crew three, um, you had some pretty strong, tall, fast people. And boat crew two, I mean, the Smurfs are like running twice as far as everybody because they're little legs. So oh, bro. <laughs> and they're the last, and so it pays to be a winner. So if you're boat crew one, you get like two minutes off. But guess who gets beat? Smurf crew. Yeah. No big deal. (laughs) I think that's like some of the, like the hardest moment in buds for me was probably uh, like a a log PT where we were in the middle of that, like attrition period, like Mm. in the first couple weeks. So we're doing like, you know, just running with the logs up and over the berms and around the berms and all that. And I remember like losing like multiple people from our log uh boat crew and and i think they left us with like three or four people on the log uh, and 
and like just being i remember that that session like literally being physically incapable of like like even lifting the log i mean it was just like sitting there and doing like yeah. isometrics on the log for yeah. like an hour as they're like just berating you as yeah. being like worthless and yeah. um so much fun. yeah and kind of kind of losing it right like i like when we finally were able to get the log off the beach like i'm like losing it so like i broke down right like i lost my cool but it was actually like this this moment where i'm like okay they literally got me to like completely crack and like uh -huh. lose my shit emotionally <laughs> and uh and but it was a good step back right so like at that moment i realized how important it was to just control my emotions and and it kind of segues into a lot of shit that like you know we'll probably touch on later in the conversation but you know the importance in in our in that line of work of like compartmentalizing emotion mm -hmm. in order to do the job that we did mm -hmm. um you know that that might have been you know thinking about it now it's interesting as i i have these conversations uh I, sometimes things come up yeah. like memories of that and i'm like Oh, you know what? Yeah. That probably was the moment <laughs> that I I kind of uh, condemned me feeling emotion or mm. expressing emotion. And, you know, from that point forward, I was like, okay, I got to keep my shit squared away and under control and, and yeah. you know, just kind of be the stoic, right? Be be the one that is able to kind of lock that stuff away and, and move on. Yeah. So, Man. yeah, interesting. <laughs> wow. How many, uh, how many officers did you have in your, in your class? Oh man, we started with a ton. Like I think it was like sixteen or eighteen. What? When we, yeah, when we when we started uh, in doc, we had a massive number of officers, and I think we graduated with like, oh man, eight. I could do the count in my head right now. Yeah, but we we whittled it down. We lost like at least ten of those officers. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we had kind of an officer heavy class. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a week after hell week, they, they rolled me after walk week or whatever, um, uh, for the shin splint thing. And then I came back right in the next class, which was awesome. Um, and it had incredible, two incredible officers, just yeah. great guys. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, they were, they were awesome. So I got to see the difference, uh, kind of in yeah. leadership, uh, styles and what that meant for the class. <laughs> totally. Man. Well, we were lucky too. Like we had we had a couple guys that like had experience like in the military, you know, one of which, oh, uh, one of was, ours was too. That, yeah. That, oh really? Yeah. Well, it could be good or bad. Exactly. Like, we, were, we, were, yeah. we were fortunate. So Mike Sorelli was a, one of the O's, you know, Mike was a uh, prior Marine. Aren't and, they jumping around and, the world right now? Is he, is he with that crew that's jumping in yeah, the seven yeah. continents right now? Yeah, he's right spearheading now? it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah they're they're, jump on every continent. Yeah. I think they're in for, Cairo uh, today. I think they're in Cairo yeah. today, that whole crew. Andy's with them. Totally. Uh, Logan Stark. Uh, the whole, yeah, Nick, they got a whole crew doing that. Nick it's crazy. Nick is, is a buddy of mine from three EOD guy that's out there. He's like yeah. one of the, he's probably has more experience jumping like uh, tandem bundles right now than oh. like anybody. And he's, he's a, it's wow. an awesome human being, but yeah. yeah, he's with Mike, but Mike yeah. was a uh, classmate of mine in buds. And, uh, I, I said this to Mike, uh, you know, recently, you know, he was absolutely an inspiration and kind of like a true North for, for us as young officers going through training, because, you know, he, he had already served in the Marine Corps. Uh, he went to Texas A&M, you know, his commission, and then, you know, being able to kind of have somebody that was an officer that, that knew how to do it right as an officer. And there's yeah. a right way and a wrong way, as you mentioned, <laughs> you know, it's, it was building rapport, being a teammate, being a, you know, one of the boys. 
and and then also understanding kind of where you're accountable and kind of where you need to really step up and lead. Uh, yeah, Mike was Mike was a, a tremendous positive influence on me nice. at a you know, kind of a formidable stage in, in kind of my career as an officer. So yeah, Very I'm cool. lucky to have uh, had that experience in Bud's. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah. One of our guys, I can say his name. Well, I'll say one of the names. Cause I think one of the guys doesn't say his name. Um, John Doolittle is the other one. He's out there and has a, has a company now that's working with, uh, uh, with people in special operations and with, with, uh, with veterans that are dealing with, uh, post-traumatic stress and dealing with, um, um, amputations and, and that sort of okay. thing. But John Doolittle was our OIC. He was awesome. Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So we're <laughs> still in touch today. His dad wrote a book. Actually, I had no idea that his dad was in uh, Tehran around, um, uh, for the, in 79 for the fall and all really? that sort of thing. He just wrote a book. Yeah. I talked about it on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Um, but uh, yeah, really, really cool. But yeah, John, amazing dude. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you graduate and then you're off to your SEAL team. Do you have to go to jump? At, at this point, are people still going to Benning or do we have our own in-house jump school now? Um it was right at the beginning. So guys, our class went to Benning okay. um, for, for static line. I, I had already gone. Yeah. So I remember me and me and another officer that I went to the Naval Academy with, uh, because we already had our, our jump wings, we ended up getting shoved in the supply room, uh, packing winter, the, all the winter warfare kits for Kodiak for SQT. Like I spent like two or three weeks, like literally packing boxes, um, but yeah, skip that and then went directly uh, from Buds to Jotsi. So at that point, okay. we were sending. Oh, so you got the pipeline now because I keep falling back on mine where there was no SQ. There was an SQT, but it was STT and it was at your team and it had just moved to group one. So it was a little, little different. Yep. So you're in the pipeline now. So at this point, there is Buds, there's SEAL qualification training, there's a junior officer training course. Um, it's yep. more, we're professionalizing things now in the SEAL teams. Yep. Okay. Totally. Yeah. Well, we went and then, uh, yeah, after that, went to SQT after Jotsi. Who's your Jotsi OIC, if you can say his name or if you can't, that's fine too. But uh, uh, what was that uh, experience like? Dick Hoffman. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, Commander Hoffman. Yeah. So you had somebody. He's retired now. So there was just the start of it then, kind of. It was like the, inse- like, you can't have been, we can't have been too class, many classes deep into, into the junior officer training course. At this stage. Yeah, it was an early one. Yeah. I mean, they were still trying to, they were still figuring things out. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got a initial exposure to Jocko, uh, as a, as a young officer in Jatsi. I remember, you know, him coming in after his, uh, his Baghdad, his, uh, uh-huh. his, his OIC tour, mm-hmm. him and, and his platoon chief came in and briefed us. And then, uh, we did all of our like FTXs out in, you know, kind of East San Diego, you okay. know, up in, uh, up near La Posta. Same place and that we would go later. Yeah. Same okay. place. I think we, we, uh, that was cool we like launched, we launched out of there and like did all these, I mean, basically they were just like patrolling through Manzanita for like yeah. hours on end. Yeah. You know, that was a cool nothing, course, man. Later. Like it was awesome. We'll get to that later, but that was, yeah. that ended up being a highlight when you and I were, were doing that sort of so, thing together. Yeah. One, one eighty out from the experience we had. Yeah. Ours was basically <laughs> like, like a very parried down version. Okay. And I, frankly, like, I mean, then even going in SQT, like everything, I mean, tactics were totally kind of changing. Technology was changing. Um, you know, frankly, even going through SQT and into my first platoon, uh, I laugh because like at land warfare, I think there was only like a handful of guys that had nods. And like, wow. I think most of the nods that were out there were like monos. They weren't even binos. So oh, we, they weren't even PBS 15s. Oh my God. And we were, like the we were doing, 
we were doing iads basically on a loom well, that's uh, how it was and, before september 11th you know so it's totally. uh, so it doesn't surprise me that much although it does surprise me that we were that far into the war and you still um we're doing the old school stuff but before it was vietnam tactics still it was just vietnam tactics from the jungle and dropped into the desert and that's what we did totally, for my first bro. two uh, platoons so as the calm guy i'd roll over you know and shoot that loom and um and uh and light it up and then no one has nods except maybe the point yep. man has like one on his rifle Maybe I think yep. there was something like that, um, yep. but that was it. And then once it, once the contact starts, once you pretend that you don't see the silhouettes that you're walking by, <laughs> and then they throw the, like the flash crash or whatever it is, and and uh, boom, it starts going, and then you drop down and do your thing. But it's all you know. It was the same thing you probably did. One's base, two's back. You know, yeah. and stay online, yeah, I mean, online. You know, the whole the whole thing. And you just drop down where you drop down. If there's a great piece of cover over here, guess what? You're not going to it because you're staying online. Um, totally. It was uh, it was all old school stuff for those first two platoons that I did. So it's not too shocking to me that you're still doing that in uh, in what 2003 is this 2003 time frame. This was up? like oh five oh four oh five. Oh really? Um, okay. And we are just it was kind That's... of like right at the transition. So like I remember we did do some iads with uh, night vision, and I I think I I mean because I'm like right like one of the only new guys in the platoon, even as a jo, I had like a I had like a mono over one eye, oh boy. which yeah. basically gives you zero depth perception. That's so tough. I remember like just like running all over the desert with like no depth perception. <laughs> Tripping on rocks, like falling. <laughs> yeah. Oh my oh, goodness. Terrible, dude. That's amazing. So yeah, that's right at the time that everything's transitioning um, throughout the training pipelines and individual movement technique is coming online because we realize, hey, if there's a rock over there, Guess what? Get behind that thing. Um, that, and uh, before before that, it wasn't. It was different. Um, but things are changing. You're right at that transitional period. Then yep. we're institutionalizing the lessons that the SEAL teams have learned since September 11th because it took a little while um, to get totally. it into the pipeline. Now, it, for platoons that are going downrange, um, they're getting those lessons learned, applying what they can as they as they go forward. But to institutionalize those lessons across the force, that uh, that took a little time. Totally. Yeah. There was definitely a lag. I mean, some, sometimes, you know, I talk about or talk to friends that spent a bunch of time at a development group in during this period. And even some of them, like even in, in conversations now are like blown away that like some of the tactics that they had, like they codified, mm -hmm. you know, during com from combat experience, it took years to like actually make its way from the East coast to the West coast. And, yeah. West and coast was a little farther behind. Yeah, totally. No, no doubt about it. For whatever reason, um, yeah, I, I I understand that it would help being on the East Coast. Uh, I got SEAL Team Two with guys coming from that command who had brought the lessons there, and we're going to change that team. We have we changed nomenclature, uh, you know how things were set up, uh, team leaders, and uh, like all that sort of thing. Uh, we're institutionalized. I'm not sure how it is now, yeah. but uh, that was valuable to have those guys come over and kind of uh, run team too and pass on those lessons that they learned in blood over the previous couple of years. Um, so yeah. that accelerated things a little bit, I think, and got us thinking a little bit ahead of maybe just took a little longer to get across to the West coast for, for a variety of, of reasons. But, uh, so you do that and you go to Kodiak, you anchor it with Kodiak. Is that, is, is, was this QT the, the anchor uh, Kodiak or did you no, do it at the beginning or we the did end? It, or? We did it at the very end. I remember it was so like Halloween. Okay. Like I think we, I think we left Halloween weekend, but we were up there in like October. And and frankly, did we you had like, like it? 
Oh, dude, I loved it. Yeah, uh, I love Kodiak. Barclow, Bar- Barclow was like nice. the, the the standout up there. So nice. John Barclow. John Barclow, for people is... listening, he's been on the podcast before, but yep. uh, incredible guy. I met him at SEAL Team 5, one of the first people I met at SEAL Team 5 when I got there back in 97. Um, and then he went on to Kodiak and spent a decade up there. And now he's at Sitka Gear. He's a big game manager, but he was up there. He's a continuity up there, and he is uh, just a wealth of knowledge. Oh, dude. Um, he has we knowledge all, from storms all... right now. Knowledge from storms.com. I think people can go there and check out his lessons from the backcountry and, um, just a great guy, but he was, he was we running are, it up are, there, huh? Dude, we all thought he was like, he, we, he was a seal. Like we were like, dude, that Everybody guy's like the does. most hard, hardcore, uh, like seal chief that's up at Kodiak. Yeah. And it turns out, you know, John was a diver, diver yeah. but, but a tremendous outdoorsman. And, you know, he taught all the cold weather stuff, all the navigation, um, you know, how did, I mean, he's the one, I mean, he worked hand in hand to develop the, the layering system yeah. that became kind of the layering system oh, yeah. employed in, in the SEAL team. So yeah, yeah um, amazing human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually reconnect. I think I reconnected with him, uh, frankly, at the Sitka booth when I reconnected with you and it had been years nice. since we had transitioned yeah, yeah. and, uh, yeah. And I've stayed in touch, you know, periodically, oh, uh, we connect and I'll make it up to Montana and say hello. Nice. So, yeah, Are you going to shot this year? Person. I would have, I don't know. I, are I haven't you, talked to are you going? About it. No, are you going? Uh, maybe I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be going, I but I have, I have all, all these projects hit. And so I'm, uh, I'm locked down here writing and working. Um, but, uh, next year I'm going to make a concerted effort to, to plan it okay. into the schedule, not have it be like, Oh, if I can go, I will, because sure. I know then it's not going to happen because these projects that I'm working on are going to push through into next year and the year after. Um, but I'm going to make, I'm going to put it on the calendar. Like, no, I am going and it's going to just be a part of the calendar rather than a thing yep. that I do if I can, because now I know that I will not be able to, if I put it in there. Yeah. You just won't do it. If it's yeah. not in your calendar, you're, yeah. you're done. There's too much. I think I, I, I went last year with uh, Marcus Capone and we, nice. we did a veteran, we did a black rifle veterans react. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Recording. Cool. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. That, well, yeah. I won't be able to do that this year either because I, because I won't be there, but I'm going to miss doing those things and seeing everybody, you know, for me, it's just, it's fun to see everybody. It's a reunion, uh, is what it to- is. Totally. Yeah. And it's a yeah. reunion of not just seals, you know, it's for, uh, SF guys and people from industry and like, it's just, it's a great reunion all around. So I always like yeah. it, you know, somebody's roll their eyes at, at shot show, but I, I always, I've had a great time I've been going since 2003. So I, I, I love that place. It's fun. Yeah. 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 It is just to catch up with guys. Yeah. I mean, literally, I don't think I walked the, the show floor at all. I, I literally was walking. Yeah. I spent time walking to wherever we were recording in the back, but I met, oh, I mean, yeah. I probably ran into a dozen people oh, yeah. on the way over to, to do the recording. Yep. <laughs> That's a good time. Um, what's uh, so what do you do is you finish Kodiak and then you go and right to your, to your team. Yeah. I went, uh, yeah, directly to seal team three. Um, the platoon that I went to, uh, Dave Silverman was the platoon commander outgoing and those guys had just gone over. They, they had actually got ripped from three to deploy and backfill seal team one. Cause there was a platoon that was relieved out in mm. uh PACOM. So the platoon oh, I went into, had, it was like, yeah, it was like the Thailand kind of, uh, okay. I think they, they had some, some substance abuse issues with yeah. the platoon that ended up uh, kind of removing them, disbanding mm. them. And then, uh, the platoon that I was in got uh, was backfilling them. So I was with those guys. We end up doing this kind of like wacky uh, workup with SEAL Team 1. So we we end up, I showed up, we did ULT immediately uh, with SEAL training. Team 1. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So like all the basic stuff, right? So like basically going into doing all the core uh, 
the core skill sets mm -hmm. with one. And then we had a break because then SEAL Team One deployed and we did our uh our like individual schools and all that. And then ultimately okay. caught back up with three and uh you know got to do our 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 squadron integration training kind of FTX stuff with Jocko's troop, uh Charlie and Delta Platoon in uh at SEAL Team Three, and then we all deployed to Iraq. So I was in Iraq uh basically spring through fall 2006 okay. and you know operated predominantly kind of in and around Chaldea which was probably 20 kilometers east of Ramadi okay. ish and you know doing you know very similar stuff to you know not urban as urban as it was in Ramadi obviously but you know we worked in Chaldea but a lot of the stuff was just daylight uh daylight patrols to contact and support really? of the marine corps and oh, wow. and the uh the conventional iraqis that were that were holding the terrain north of the euphrates so wow. it was it, it was a a wake-up call to me as a young seal that was like my first deployment first patrol was like a daylight patrol with the marine corps and the iraqis and having like ieds go high order in farm fields like behind us and uh you know kind of living that but we've we adopted uh you know different tactics in order to take advantages back and you know support those those units uh appropriately and effectively during the course of the deployment so uh, it was an interesting time for sure definitely atypical for what i expected a seal platoon to be doing in iraq at that time yeah and what was what was the base like that you were on uh so we were in habania so okay. habania was fairly built up across yeah. from uh Alta Kadem. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it, it was, I mean, okay. very safe, very permissive. I mean, it, <laughs> as base. safe and permissive as they get, but it was a pretty big uh base. Yeah. So, you know, they have we have mortars and rockets and all that stuff. But right. uh operated from there, we we operated out of a combat outpost um that was very small. And that's where the Marine uh military transition teams were huh. what they were called at the time. Uh it was Frankly, like a handful of badass infantry Marines from 3-2 and 3-5 that were embedded with like, you know, a battalion size Iraqi infantry element. Yeah. And it was basically a Heskode off area of like Iraqi homes that they had like commandeered. And they, I mean, th those guys, I mean, I think the first month we showed up, they had like 115 mortar impacts inside the inside the Hesco's like every wow. day, like clockwork, they would get hit like after patrol. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'll say this in case I don't want to forget, you know, some of the most heroic, capable uh, individuals uh, that I, I served with in combat were were part of that, like Marine Corps, yeah. those Marine Corps units that were in there. I mean, like just unbelievable warriors. I mean, yeah. they. I mean, talk talk about like knowing the risk and having to go out there and and execute operational profiles that put them out in daylight, you know, with large elements, you know, basically hanging it out there until they get ambushed and then, you know, breaking contact and then take trying to take a tactical advantage back. I mean, I, I witnessed some some extremely heroic stuff. And uh, I, I love to always emphasize that, brother, because, yeah. you know, people always put special operations right. on a pedestal and uh dude it's like the the marine corps infantry and army infantry that that i served alongside i mean see there's so many guys that are just like 
I mean, it's gonna. It, yeah. It's like I'm. I'm at a loss for words. Like yeah. I typically don't don't go through this where I'm like I struggle to really frame it appropriately. Yeah. But I mean, I, I really appreciate uh, those guys. You know, That's I right. and I appreciate what they did for this country and for mm-hmm. each other and for us. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I can't I can't thank them enough. I actually yeah. I, I start to get emotional thinking yeah. about it because there's so much sacrifice and so much capability within that uh the, that group of people. That they they typically do not get the credit that they deserve. So yeah, no I'll, doubt about I'll it. leave it at that. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, so much respect for that 18, 19, 20 year old kid who's like just manning his post um, and just standing there, maybe with an Iraqi next to him, maybe a couple other Americans there. Uh, they don't have nods, they have heavy body armor. It's friggin' summer, uh, 120 yep. degrees, and a car's heading toward them that looks like it might either have bad suspension or be loaded down as an ID. Uh, totally. and now what are you supposed to do? Uh, like that, so much respect for everybody that stood yeah. the watch like that. Um, because typically, you know, we're choosing the time and place uh, of the engagement. We know moving to and from target, there are contingencies, uh, things that happen, hit IEDs, helicopters go down, that sort of a thing. But it's, we're typically building up target packages. Um, we're working on a trigger for something. We're using two disassociated human networks to make sure we're not getting played to go take out some decades, centuries old feud um, and uh, and then confirming everything with some sort of technical intelligence, um, at least later on in the war. Uh, beginning, we launched the whole thing I think with uh, way less than that as far as Intel okay. goes, but <laughs> later on you had to have <laughs> some of these, uh, these things in place. Uh, but typically you're, you're choosing the time and the place unless you're getting mortared and rocketed, you know, on base type of a thing. Um, yeah. but, uh, those, but a lot of uh, most other units are not choosing the time and the place. The, no. en- the enemy. No, no, they were, I mean, those guys were, I mean, they were truly executing general Petraeus's counterinsurgency doctrine from like at like the very basic ground level right yeah. they were getting outside of the armor and and working by through and alongside uh yeah. you know our partner forces and doing really dangerous stuff uh and and having to wrangle a bunch of you know local national military that you know frankly you know receive the bare minimum training i mean frankly we're training them right we were getting them up to speed to be uh-huh. at a proficiency that is at least like not reckless going out the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, out the gate, but yeah, tremendous individuals, you yeah. know, very, very capable people that did some very, uh, amazing things overseas. Yeah. Did you, uh, when you're going out there patrolling to contact essentially in daylight, were you thinking like, what are we doing? Aren't we supposed to be going out at night, sneaking around and like uh, grabbing people out of their yeah, beds <laughs> and like, what the hell am I doing here uh, in the middle there, of the street was... at noon on a Tuesday? Like, what are you, what are you yeah. thinking about what you guys are doing, the mission you're doing? Yeah. I mean, so 100%, I mean, initially, right. That's like your reaction is like, okay, this feels wrong <laughs> because it's not what we've been training to do. And then don't get me wrong. Like we did do nighttime operations in tandem, right? We were doing daylight stuff, nighttime stuff. It was like, it was go, go, go for the entire deployment. Um, regardless of how, and I'll, I'll say this, right? Cause like I, I, I have a lot of friends and they have a lot of differing opinions on this. And there was actually a lot of judgment cast on the leadership team at three during this period, because we're kind of doing an atypical job for a special operations unit mm-hmm. in Iraq at the time. And I will say that it, it felt exposed but it felt right to support 
the guys that were out there fighting, right? The Marines that were were in that combat outpost. If we didn't do the stuff that we did, mm-hmm. I would have felt terrible and wrong. Like I wasn't being a teammate to those guys mm-hmm. because they were living in that cop nonstop, right? They didn't get the break to go back to Habania and sleep without the fear of, of, of taking a mortar on the roof or something. They literally were living there day in, day out and doing the same daylight patrol cadence every single day for like a year. Like some of their deployments were a year or 18 months. And, you know, I think that that was motivation enough for me and for the guys in my platoon that mm-hmm. were doing, you know, that higher risk stuff. And, uh, you know, I will say like, you know, we weren't stupid about it. We knew we had capabilities that... uh could really complement and accelerate kind of what the Marines and the Iraqis were doing. So we slowly started to morph um, our role over there into like overwatch. So we, we did, I mean, we were doing daylight patrols in support for a while. And Mm -hmm. then we figured like, Hey, we're just getting ambushed every single time. How about this? You guys are going to go out and run your patrols. How about we, we go in, we insert into some, some key buildings under cover of darkness we'll hold those positions while you guys roll out on patrol. And then as you guys are coming back towards the cop, you know, we're going to see enemy maneuvering from our, our advantageous tactical positions. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll be able to kind of give you guys, you know, some effective cover fire and, and maybe preemptive fire. And, and, and that actually started to work really well. So we, we started partnering with them and, and kind of bringing our capabilities to bear and taking a tactical advantage back from the enemy yeah. Um, in the like the second half of deployment, and and not dissimilar to what was going on in Ramadi at the time, right? They yeah. were, you know, Jocko and 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 Charlie and Delta were doing daylight patrols to contact, and they were doing, you know, you know, sniper Overwatch supported um, uh, patrols. So like we were really doing very similar stuff, but in a uh, I would say it's a little bit more rural of a of a battlefield environment. You know, a lot of it's very green. I mean, people don't think Iraq is green, but yeah, along the Euphrates, there's it is some beautiful like, places. You know, totally. I mean, it was like it, it felt like Southeast. I mean, like Southeast Asia. Mm. I mean, I remember getting inserted off of like riverine task unit boats, oh, and nice. like you're in like chest deep water, going into like a palm grove with like you know reeds all around you, and uh, yeah, you 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 could totally be in Thailand or Vietnam or something. Um, That's wild. So yeah. Yeah. And I remember we were wearing like, I mean, I was wearing green camis and, okay. you know, mixing, mixing things up and, yeah. and all that. So yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting experience. I mean, I think it was a, a, a great experience for me as a mm-hmm. junior officer because you know, talk about joint operations. I mean, I was thrust into the middle of it, right. I was working with army Marine Corps and then our special operations guys and on a daily basis yeah. and learning to brief um, in a, in a joint construct to, you know, in the yeah. format that the Marine Corps expects oh, or yeah. the army expects. So yeah. it was, it was good. It was a, a, a great growth opportunity for me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, and it kind of, it kind of was like more of the same. I mean, most of my career was, uh, it was at least as a tactical leader was, yeah. was kind of doing that type of stuff. Like, you know, the atypical, more daylight operations, okay. Um, in support of counterinsurgency doctrine. Yeah. Well, did you have a, a certain number of Iraqis that you had to take with you every time, or did you operate like uh, with them every time you went out the gate or most of the yeah. times you went out the gate? 
Yeah, we had like the Iraqi special, like kind of like the counterpart, like they're, they were special operations guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it basically, they were just another group of Iraqis. They were assigned to you? Yeah. Yeah, they were assigned to us. I, I think there was probably, we would take between like eight and 16 of them out with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would come in and we'd find roles for them, you know, that they, within their, their capabilities. And, you know, they would either just be patrolling with us or they would be, uh, you know, kind of managing security in a building, you know, as we're, yeah. you know, kind of setting up overwatch positions. Yeah, man, that's but, wild, wild time to, to be out there. I mean, we, we overlapped. So by that point, uh, so I was in Ramadi first and then I went to, to Baghdad to do that, uh, that agency job, which was awesome. Um, and then I think I left in May, I think. So you were coming, you probably came in in April. Yeah, we were, well, we might've been like March, March. April, uh, of 06. And then we left in maybe October, November mm-hmm. timeframe. Yeah. Yeah. If we overlap by like a month, cause I stayed behind when the, the rest of the, the team went, went back. I didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I spent, I, I initially was in Baghdad. So I was as a JO, okay. I, I filled like a joint job at, they called it the perfume palace. It was like the Intel fusion center. Okay. It was run by a, uh, uh, a green Lieutenant Colonel. Um, that, yeah. I mean, it was killer. I mean, I got, I got some really high level exposure to kind of like what was going on uh, above and beyond my pay grade. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, thankfully they, they needed, uh, they needed some fresh meat out in Alamba to, like, yeah. to throw at some nice. of the, the, yeah. the, the craziness that was going on. Get you on. out of so that I, tactical operations center, get you out. Yeah. With your totally. guys. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. Yeah. So we did definitely, so we definitely overlapped there in Baghdad. Cause that's where I was working out of with the, with the agency at the time, which was okay. Awesome. But I'd have to go liaise with big army. So it's probably where I went, um, every now and again, most of the time I would do it, uh, on the radio or, uh, just to get the QRS set up in the different battles for the different battle space owners. So we would be charging through at night and we had different ones set up because, um, just so you can have somebody close at hand if you needed it. Um, but every now and again, I'd have to go over to big army and of course I'm working at the agency. So I'm just like, you know, civilian clothes, longer hair, beard, you know, that sort of a thing, which was kind of cool, much, much better fit for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it was, it was a, it was a, what a crazy time to, to be out there. Um, man, did you guys, did everybody make it back from deployment on with your, um, so from my, my, my platoon? Yes. I mean, we had some guys with like minor wounds, uh, like frag and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we lost, uh, we lost Mark Lee and, and Mike Monsoor mm-hmm. um, from our sister troop on that deployment. I mean, and, and obviously, you know, I, I've talked about this before, you know, because like, I think people ask, like, oh, how, you know, how was it in combat and all that up until Mark was killed? I, I personally, I felt like it, like you're kind of like invincible. Like you're, it's just like running an FTX and, and doing blank fire. Like we're going to dominate, you know, you, you can't, nothing can happen to you. You can't get hurt. You can't get killed. Um, and, and I, I remember going to Ramadi for, for Mark's, uh, memorial and it, and it really kind of set in heavily for me. I mean, talk about kind of like pivotal kind of catalytic moment. Number two for me, you know, one being the towers falling. I think two is Mark being killed. Uh, cause I had been going out on day, a lot of daylight patrols at that point and, and getting, you know, contacted, like ambushed basically. And, and we had walked away with nobody shot, which is a miracle because I mean, some of the situations that we were in, I mean, we had rounds like hitting all around us, like ripping through palm groves and grass. And, you know, I think back and like, we should, somebody should have been shot. I mean, we were in totally exposed positions and, 
And I wasn't thinking about that as much uh, before. And then as soon as that happened, you know, it starts to weigh on you. You know, I, I, I definitely sat in bed, you know, the night before going out on a, on a major operation like that. And, and, you know, that gravity of kind of responsibility and accountability for, for the guys mm -hmm. that are going out um, starts to weigh on you. And it probably was the thing that really accelerated our evolution of tactics in 06 to, to kind of be, to taking the advantage back by, mm -hmm. by doing more of the sniper overwatch type stuff. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, man, I mean like the reality of, you know, the bullets actually do kill you uh, started to set in because it's not like a near death experience. Right. I mean, like unless you get shot, you're not close. Yeah. You may be very close to death in theory, but like, you're not touching it, right? Mm. You're not like you're not experiencing kind of a you know the reality and the gravity of 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 that situation. Yeah. So you take it lightly until you know you have somebody, you know, you know somebody not come back, right? And you know that that was a major kind of turning point. I think emotionally, mentally, kind of psychologically for me. And you know, I, I think you know we were lucky in our platoons, like it, it, you know everybody came back. But it, it was not without kind of some heavy thoughts and and kind of uh, you know yeah. risk involved. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was 06. and you know at the end of that deployment to you know uh, Mike Monsoor end up uh, you know sacrificing himself to to save the other guys on the roof. Um, you know one of one of which was was Mike Sorelli. So mm -hmm. you know Mike Mike was on the rooftop uh, with Mike Monsoor mm -hmm. and. Uh, yeah, just kind of an interesting connection, right? I mean, that's Mike was the guy that I was telling you about yeah. from from buds that we respect, and you know, he was he was right in the thick of things uh, when when Mike gave his life. So, uh, yeah, yeah, not the way you want to come home from deployment, right? You you know, yeah. it's kind of that's it's kind of how I mean, I think it was like this for a lot of combat units, right? You know, you you think it's all rah rah coming back after being gone for six, eight, twelve months, but you know, a lot of, a lot of the return home was, you know, going in and visiting families or, or, you know, going to memorials or funerals and, uh, and then refitting and, and getting ready for the next job. Um, yeah. and, and not let that stuff bother you. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, when we got to, uh, I don't know when I started thinking about this, but, um, you just reminded me of it, you know, you can do everything right out there. When I say right, I mean, like if we were in this room right now and had a, a whiteboard up and the flat screens on there and a bunch of Intel packets and all this training and we could plan the mission and then we could go out and execute that mission and still do everything right. Like if you were to table it and talk about it and walk it through like in a junior officer training course and say, okay, what do you do now? This is, this is what's happened. You're now you're ambushed here. Okay. Or an IED hit this vehicle, or now this guy has a, has a wound in his leg. You're on your way to target or you're on your way back. And this happens. Um, and you can answer those questions and all of them be right, uh, there. And then you can yep. do that in the field and lose people and have everything just go to shit. Even though you made the exact quote unquote, right decision. Um, so I can see how that can just completely weigh on someone when they get home. And the opposite is true as well. You can make all the complete wrong decisions. Like if we did this thing on the table, talked about the mission and went around that table at the junior officer training course and someone answered a question, nope, that's not what you do here because X, Y, or Z. Nope, that's not why you do here. So yep. 
you can give all those wrong answers in the field and bring everyone back uh, totally, just because man. of all the, the chaos, atmospherics, everything else going on. So it's such a strange thing. So that's why I can, you know, I think about that a, a lot um, just because uh, I feel like I was very fortunate um, and I could have made all the wrong decisions, but for whatever reason, it, it, it worked out. Um, totally. I understand that people make the right decisions out there and it doesn't, it doesn't work out and you lose guys and guys get wounded and the whole, it just, so it's a really interesting dynamic, which means got to kind of keep adapting on the fly to in tune to include when you get home and deal with mm -hmm. that in thinking about it in hindsight, you know, totally, um, man. but you get, so do you recycle right away or do you have a second when you get home to, to take a breath? And what are your, what are your major, when you look back at it, uh, do you have different lessons learned now from that time, now that you've had time and distance, uh, than you did right when you landed, like when you got home and thought about all those lessons learned, probably tactical in nature. Um, what were those lessons then? And then what are they, what are they now? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, it was, it was fast and furious then, right. It was, you know, it took something like, you know, losing a guy to, to start evolving the operations because you start to realize that the risk is real mm -hmm. and there are ramifications and, and fallout from decisions that we're making, mm -hmm. um, you know, operationally. So I think looking back at it, I mean, I, you know, I don't do this very often, but yeah, looking back at it, I mean, I, I, I feel, I felt really good about how we evolved quickly and, and how mm -hmm. we took advantage back. Um, I think, the thing that we did right, and maybe this was just because we, you know, I had some really sound mentorship from the guys in my platoon, you know, that, that had, you know, so a lot of more second platooners, but yeah. we had tremendous second platooners. And then we had, you know, a couple guys that were a little bit more senior, you know, all, those guys, they really, they built a team, right? They, they built a, uh, there was like friendship and fraternity and and i i use this word now and i wasn't using it back then but there was there was really love that existed within that element mm -hmm. and i think because that deep connection was was cultivated and in 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 our platoon on that first go you know we didn't we didn't haze people to, for the sake of hazing we didn't ostracize people you know, yeah, guys got into fights or or got into arguments or that, but then they, you know, they figured it out. And, and we it really, we had kind of like this inclusive group of guys yeah. and, and yeah, sure. You're punished if you do something wrong, but the goal wasn't to kind of create division and punish or like put people through the, the, the motions just because that's what they were exposed to. Yeah. It was to create unit cohesion. And I think because of that, you know, you, I mean, it, I wanted to, I mean, I had like a deep connection to these guys. I wanted to make sure that I was doing things better and tighter and, and more optimally mm -hmm. because I owed them their lives. And I cared more about those guys coming home alive than me going home alive. And, and it's a tough concept for sometimes for people to understand. Like I literally could deal with me being killed it was much easier for me to reconcile with that than than making a decision or exposing guys that I I really loved and cared about to undue risk um, without doing the job that I I owe them. Um, so yeah, I think I think that looking back now, I think that's I wouldn't have pointed my finger to kind of like the loving connection and unit cohesion being like the thing that differentiated us. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, I would have pointed to like tactical proficiency, strength, endurance, like, yeah. you know, the, you know, being tough team guys, but, and that plays into it, but it's, it, it was really like, we really gelled. And I, and I, you know, bro, I talked to some of those, a lot of those guys still, some of them, um, the guys that I probably spent the most time in, in daylight combat with are my closest friends. And they weren't for a while. I lost touch with a bunch of those guys. Mm. And, and one of them in particular, he was an automatic weapons gunner breacher, uh, when, when we were deployed and then he went and left and, and spent time on the East coast. Uh, and we lost touch for a long time. He's now, I mean, one of my closest friends, if not my closest friend. Mm. And, uh, and again, I, like, I, I got to point back to it. It's like, we, we developed some real bonds and real friendship and it. I think it, it just sharpened the, it, it sharpened the edge for, for me as a leader and, yeah. and kind of a tactician. Um, yeah, super important. Yeah. Are you feeling at this point you're coming home? Are you feeling like, all right, ready to go again? I'm at the top of my game. Now I have, I have all this training. Now I have all this experience and the, these lessons, <laughs> uh, lessons learned. I'm ready to jump back in and get back after it as a, as an OIC. Like, what are you thinking at this point? Uh, or are you recognizing yeah. like, Hey, maybe this took a little bit of a toll on me. Like where, where's your head at this point? No, I was, I was so fired up to go back over to combat. Like yeah. I, that's all I wanted. Um, and, and lo and behold, uh, the job, my next job actually take, took me to the, to Paycom to like the Philippines. Oh, really? I'm like, I don't think I'm I like, knew that. Did I know oh, that? Oh man, dude, it was, uh, cause I, I went to work for support activity, which is the ah, SRT. Okay. And so I was a cross-functional team OIC. Did you so have to I go on that training? Did you have to do all the, what are the, yeah. whatever it was called? Yeah. All, like SIGINT and human and IMIT. Yeah. Uh, I like, I did like the round robin out in DC with all the, okay. the agencies and, um, yeah, interesting. It was an interesting change, right? I came, yeah. I came from all I knew was Alambar province in 06 to like semi vacation for like eight, eight months. Where'd you right? work out of that in the PI? In Zambawanga. Yeah. Okay. In, at the, at the, uh, just soda P. Man. So, yeah. Cause I did the same thing in 2009, I think. Oh, bro. Yeah. You were, you were literally right after me. No way. Yeah. I mean, so. Yeah. The same thing. Very similar in that, you know, you train up, you're out. And at that time it was like, okay, we're going back to Afghanistan. And then it was like, no, you're going to Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq, Afghanistan and take on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so with all that experience, you know what I find. Um, but, uh, actually, you know, I made the best of it and I learned a lot and yeah. I read a ton. Um, and I worked with the Filipino Marine, uh, general out there. That was my, and I took on the kind of role of uh, him as my mentor passing on every, cause he'd been fighting in that Southern Island chain for his whole career. Uh, you know, totally. he was, I mean, at the time I thought he was super old, like 60, he was probably, you know, he's probably like 50. I mean, he was older, I right. think, right. Uh, <laughs> but I took on the, you know, like, Hey, I'm the student, you're the, you're the mentor uh, type yeah. thing. And you know, we're going to, we're going to help you as much as we can with our technical intelligence capabilities as we go through in these campaigns into the Southern Island chain and all that stuff. And I, was on my own island. So I was the OIC of the island type thing. And it was actually, yep. you know, I got in the best shape of my life out there, just crossfitting it like a friggin' <laughs> madman. And then supplementing yeah. that with like 1980s style, you know, encyclopedia bo uh, bodybuilding, uh, Arnold.
handheld yep. style. So doing both because you have some time. Built a range out there. Built put steel out there. So shooting right. all the time, and it was awesome. And the army guys I was working with from First Special Forces Group were just awesome. Their uh, their uh, warrant officer in particular, first name Dave, last initial L. Um, but uh, that warrant officer course that Army Special Forces guys go through is so tailored to that kind of an environment. Um, working a counterinsurgency campaign yep. through a host nation force, that sort of a thing. So I learned a ton from him. Um, we started getting like a competition as who could read the the most counterinsurgency, uh, you know, history <laughs> books and all that stuff and what we could apply. And uh, so it ended up being a great experience primarily. And I thank my um, task unit commander for this uh, is that he let me get out of Zamboanga immediately and never go back. Like if it was brought up, yeah. like, Hey, we should bring the awesome. OIC back here. Um, like he was, he was fantastic. He came to my book signing this last, uh, uh, this last May in Coronado. Um, and I got to thank him again. Every time I see him, I thank him for that because he could easily have said, Oh no, I want this guy to be back here in this talk and just do paperwork essentially. Um, totally, man. I, but I learned so much out there on that Island and with the Philippine Marines and reading and working out. And it was just, it was, it ended up being, I made the best of it, I guess. That was a very long way of saying I made the best of it. Um, but, uh, what, what did you do out there? Was it, uh, and was it a full six months you spent there? Yeah, it was, it was the full six or it was probably longer, right? It was probably seven or eight by the time you did like, you know, their you were like the advon and then you stayed uh, for turnover and all that. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was just, you know, doing intelligence yeah. related support stuff, uh, traveling a bit, you know, inner, inner, you know, interactions up in, uh, Manila with, uh, with kind of the government agencies and stuff mm -hmm. up there. So it definitely interesting. Right. And, and it definitely was to your point, you can either make it a terrible experience or you can learn from it. Yeah. Right. And take all of that stuff and, and put it into action later on. And it, it turns out it actually was extremely helpful. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the following deployment, um, I had so much exposure to kind of higher level, you know, assets and kind of how you target and, and mm -hmm. do all that, that I wouldn't have had that if I had just kind of done ground combat, like I did in 06 again. Now, uh -huh. granted, I was depressed because I'm like watching after actions coming back from Sodder city and all my buddies that, I mean, friends of mine that were with me at three were now doing basically unilateral operations in Sodder. Mm -hmm. And, and it was, I mean, it was just kind of crazy, yeah. you know, you know, direct combat or, you know, urban combat. Yeah. I, I was like ready to punch out. I, I mean, I think I actually uh, started the process with like a, uh, like a military transition headhunter at that point oh, wow. on deployment, just because yeah. I was like, yeah. And, and, you know, I'm glad I'm, I mean, actually very thankful that I was like, you know what? Um, I'm going to stick around. I mean, I want to do a platoon commander. Everybody says that you'll regret it if you don't. And 100%. I mean, like, I'm so fortunate that I, mm. I just, I rogered up. I went back to three okay. uh, and, and then end up doing my platoon commander there. And, you know, it was phenomenal. I mean, I, we ended up getting sent to Ramadi initially. So I, I worked up with a platoon, uh, went to Ramadi, totally different uh, atmosphere compared to 06. So yeah. 2010 okay. versus 06. I mean, my my turnover ops were in the back of Hilux pickup trucks, unarmored. You know, you wouldn't do that in 06. No. You probably would die. Yeah. So, and, and frankly, like we, you know, we didn't take any contact on target until like my last operation in Iraq, uh, before getting pulled to Afghanistan. So I did a couple months in Iraq with my platoon and then got shifted to Afghanistan to, to take 
take over a different platoon. And uh, and then Afghanistan at that time was was kind of similar to Iraq in 06, right? I mean, it was not it, it was it was what pretty kinetic and it was 2010. 2010. So okay. it had been summer of 2010. Uh, I ended up going to southeastern Afghanistan uh, to Zabal province and lived lived on a uh, fire base, you know, I don't know, 100 kilometers from the nearest friendlies. And we kind of just were out there operating. So, again, a lot of daylight stuff, you know, yes. daylight ATV movement into villages and clearing villages and then rotary wing inserts into villages in the mountains and then you know, holding positions remain over day. Wow. Uh, and yeah, yeah, all that stuff. But, you know, I had a, I had a lot deeper knowledge of kind of all of the supporting assets, utilizing rotary wing and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, kind of exposure. I mean, even being in Iraq at the first part of that, there was a lot of assets left over in Iraq because they were being shifted from Iraq to Afghanistan at that point, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so things that you wouldn't have access to as a, you know, a conventional soft unit, I had access to, you know, so, so it was kind of like a, a ramped up FTX. I had like ISR and I had like, I had, you know, fire support and, you know, we were targeting, you know, kind of using higher level uh, resources. So it, it was really good in that capacity and, you know, just made the best of it. And and I benefited from it. Man, what, uh, why did they move you from Iraq to Afghanistan? Did somebody get hurt or get fired over there and they needed you. Or yeah, something. They, yeah, they were pla- just replaced a platoon commander um, for a number of reasons. So I basically took over a new platoon. I knew a handful of guys in the platoon, not all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a, a, we had a lot of new guys at the team at that time. So a majority mm-hmm. of the platoon were, were new guys. And then uh, a couple really, you know, I mean, s- super sound guys. I mean, like, there's a guy, Benny, Benny Olson, um, He's yeah. retired now, so I can I can throw his name out there. But Benny was a uh, my platoon chief there, and he's a phenomenal human being. Yeah. I mean, a tremendous operator. We were both super short, so we were like the little the the child uh, leadership team. Like we both <laughs> were like five foot six or under. Um, yeah, but Benny Benny was actually actually three for like most of his career. Okay, uh, and and he had actually been. Uh, in Ramadi in 06. So Benny okay. was uh, was part of Jocko's troop in 06. And then um, he was in Afghanistan when I took over that platoon. So I, I had a very sound senior enlisted out there and, you know, yeah, just kind of opened my ears and shut my mouth, listened to what the boys had to say and kind of how we needed to affect change. Yeah. And we, we did what we needed to do. And um, that deployment was awesome. I mean, very different than Iraq for sure. Uh, but you know, lots of of phenomenal experience over there. Are you working with uh, Afghan security forces, or are you doing unilateral ops? What are you doing? No, yeah, all partnered operations. So yeah. we they had an uh, an A and A, so Afghan National Army kind of compound mm-hmm. like next to us, next to our firebase, and then we had some uh, like an Af- Afghan police, like a local police force that we worked with. So we used to kind of we do stuff with both of them. We'd have local police and, and army with us. Uh, and yeah, it very kind of the same thing, except we weren't using armor. We were using, uh, LTA TVs like Kawasaki Terexes and doing stuff, you know, ground mobility from our firebase out probably 10, 15 clicks. Nice. Uh, and then everything else was rotary wing. Like you couldn't like, you know, the IED threat was so heavy. Like they, they kind of, 
bringing supplies into that fire base before I showed up. They had to like wrecker out like, I mean, we had one of the uh, MRAPs was like wreckered into the fire base and just left there because it got IED'd. Wow. I mean, multiple ID strikes on the way in. So uh, I think I was in armor one time on that entire deployment. Everything was either uh, foot footborne, ATV born, or rotary wing insert extract uh, for the whole deployment. Wow. Jeez. And, and uh, so you spent like five months over there. How long were you in Iraq before they uh, picked you up and moved you over there? Yeah, it's probably so probably a couple months in Iraq and then, you know, five or six months in uh probably closer to six months total by the time we got relieved and ripped out of Afghanistan. Yeah. So was, was there all that summer. Jeez. Um, and everybody, how did everybody do out there? Did everybody make it back? We, so we were good all the way up to the last turnover op. And then, uh, we lost our, our sister platoon and the East coast team, uh, platoon that was turning over with them. Uh, they had a black Hawk, uh, go in. So, uh, high, um, pinnacle insert kind of on high ground i mean we were doing you know we were inserting people on high ground to kind of create overwatch and and kind of uh you know supporting effort positions and uh brown out as they kind of went in to kind of insert mm -hmm. guys and they couldn't you know brown out they lifted back off and the black hawk caught like basically smashed into the side of the mountain and tore the tore the bird in half uh killed everybody on board except for uh, a single seal um, that was on. So, uh, uh, a bunch of operators from the East coast. And then, uh, uh, Brendan Looney was, uh, AOIC, uh, kind of, uh, squad leader from our sister platoon was killed. Uh, and, and yeah, that was a tough one, man. I mean, I, I've spoke openly about this. I didn't realize how impactful it was until probably I exited the military mm. and realized that it like, it kind of fucked me up. Um, Brandon was a Naval Academy lacrosse player, badass operator, just like strong, smart, you know, got along with all the boys and, uh, you know, newly married, uh, went to an all guys Catholic high school, DeMatha in, in like Baltimore, Maryland, similar to me. I mean, I went to an all guys Catholic high school in Chicago and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I ended up flying. Yeah, yeah. My return from that uh, deployment was uh, on a hero flight with like 23 casements with a couple of our boys. And then uh, uh, being with his family, right. You know, just kind of bringing, going back and uh, doing that. So yeah, my, my, my reunion with my wife was like, you know, two weeks after I had actually touched down, you know, she came out for the funeral and all that. And we, you know, then, then went back out West, but yeah, it was, it was a rough one, you know, unexpected, but you know, <laughs> I always say like the helicopters out there, like being on a rotary wing, insert an extract, especially in high altitude was like super sketchy. Right. I like, I would much rather just bet on the ground in, in direct combat than, you know, in some of those birds. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you like the rotary wing pilots out there, amazing, like Eagle assault and debt one oh one were the two units that we worked with predominantly. And, uh, I mean, the most badass pilots ever. I mean, those yeah. guys would like strip helicopters down to like bare minimum in order to uh, put more people on. They would bleed fuel tanks down to like the minimum fuel to kind of get in and out so they could, you know, carry more weight, be more maneuverable. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the tremendous capability. It's just sometimes, you know, things happen, right? You're doing dangerous shit and, you know, brown out and 
and catching like an outcropping of, on the mountain, you know, you, you can't do shit. And, you know, the, the lift and the, the kind of the, the aerodynamics at altitude with a, a single prop mm. Blackhawk, you know, those things aren't designed to be flying like that at 10,000 feet. No. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens. So yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we lost uh, a bunch of guys and uh, yeah. And then I, you know, took the placeholder at, uh, at SQT and, um, yeah, we, we finally, we ended up crossing paths yeah. when, when you were over at the yep. command. That was a, that was the time. Um, oh man. Uh, and those, the, the, that flight back though, did you guys stop in Germany on the way back? Do you, is it an initial uh, we, stop in Germany and then home to the, then to the East coast? Yeah. We didn't even get off the, yeah, we didn't even get off the plane. It was like a quick, hot it's, refuel. It's had another, and another then, crew jumped on to fly. Another, yeah. Another crew jumped on. I mean, and then we just, I mean. I mean, I was probably, <laughs> I was so out of it. And like, yeah, we just literally from there and then back to, uh, uh, to Delaware, I believe. I think we, Landed we, Dover. yeah, went into Dover first and, you know, kind of, they offloaded all the casements. And then from there we ended up driving, uh, into, into Baltimore, uh, to kind of link up with, with the family and, and friends and stuff that, you know, they'd already been notified at that point. So, you know, we're just there to do whatever we could to support the family. Oh man, so tough. So you finish that up and get back, get back west. And at this point, are you, do you know that you're? At what point do you know that you're gonna uh, go to uh, SQT and then exit? Like, are you thinking about exiting at this point? But you have some time left, or are you contemplating staying uh, in and doing the troop yeah. commander bit and the XO and the ops and the CO? Or what are you? What are you thinking at at this point? I, you're like, hey, I, a, I've had a pretty good run yeah. here. I mean, you did Iraq <laughs> 06. You got the experience in the PI to see that that human side of things, uh, and then you get Afghanistan. Um, so you've had a solid run up to this point as far as experience goes. So what are you? What are you thinking? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think I was at the time I was ready to go to Jotsi technically. And then I, I ended up getting shifted to SQT. Um, I, it, it kind of was a placeholder for me to make some decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I, if I were to stay in at that point, I, I would have, uh, put a package in the screen to go to green team. And, and that was kind of my path. That's what I wanted to pursue. And I, I was, I was pretty much on that path and just using kind of the shore duty as a kind of a reset, probably just really to get into shape and actually become a better shooter and like, mm -hmm. like actually focus on CQC and, and, and all that, because mm -hmm. I, you know, <laughs> I, I hadn't done it in probably a year, right. Ever since workup. And it was kind of a light introduction to it, uh, uh during workups anyway. So yeah, I wanted to be prepared before I went through. So the shore duty made sense. Yeah. And then, uh, my, I, I got two younger brothers. Um, and you know, at the time my wife had just gotten pregnant with our first, um, with our daughter and my brother, Chris was living with his wife and, uh, my niece who was like four and, uh, my nephew who was just born. Um, he was like three, four weeks old. We spent Christmas with them, told them that we were going to have a daughter. And then, uh, my brother, Chris was, you know, three weeks later after Christmas was killed in an inbound avalanche in Winter Park, Colorado. Um, just crazy. I mean, like you talk about unexpected, you know, you don't expect to lose 
you know, a brother to an avalanche inbounds. And my brother was an avid backcountry skier, you know, skied with Beacon and Probe and Shovel and, you know, went to school at Western State in Gunnison, Colorado. And this was just like a freak accident. So I only bring it up because, you know, at that point, um, you know, I stayed in Colorado with his family for a month or whatever. And, uh, and just, you know, I, I just like, it was devastating for me, bro. I mean, like, I, I'm like, I can't think about it and not, you know, feel the emotion because, uh, you know, I just got to see him. It's like, I got to see the devastation that was left with him being gone. And, uh, you know, it made me think, right. I'm about to have a daughter. My wife hasn't really seen me for like much of the last, whatever, eight years of our marriage. And, uh, I, I think that was the moment where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to get out, um, just to be with the family. Right. So I don't, I mean, God forbid, like I, I, something happens to me and I leave my wife and a child, uh, you know, without a dad. So like I extremely difficult for me, but it was, uh, that, that was really a decision point. So at that point I, I kind of decided like, I'm, I'm going to transition out and, uh, that would have been in and around 2012, 2013. Um, and, you know, made the jump uh, early or kind of mid to late 2013 um, into the private sector. And uh, yeah. Uh, and then I've <laughs> been there ever since. I tried the reserves for a little while and uh, yeah, just, you know, the focus on, you know, what I was doing now and you know, on the outside was more important. And I, I, I just couldn't commit to deployments and decided to, to kind of punch out completely, um, yeah. you know, a few years after that. Oh man, that's a, that's a rough run. Well, we did have a couple good times though in SQT, uh, yeah. <laughs> junior officer training course, buds, uh, during those last couple of years. Uh, but, uh, you know, so my, uh, so right now my wife is in, uh, Jackson with our littlest one, uh, the ski race. Uh, I'm here locked down writing. Um, but, uh, she's there and she was, she checked into the hotel and, uh, she saw, Hey, there's some people here that look kind of familiar and like, sure. like, not that we know she knew them, but like, there's something about this group. And then this morning she woke up, she just called me before I came in, in here and it's a gold star family retreat. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's awesome. And, uh, and so she called me and she, one of her friends who lost her husband, uh, was there from our time in Coronado. And so she called me this morning and was like, I'm so glad, like, I am like, it's just strange for her to be there with our son and just happens to be in the same hotel yeah, bro. with all these widows and, um, and then, you know, the support and whatever they have going on for this weekend out there. But she was like, it was, yeah, it was an interesting call. I mean, that's kind of, you don't expect it. You know, she was going to the Jackson hole ski race, you know, you're going to these different things and, yeah. and, uh, and it's the gold star family retreat. Yeah. Well, she, knew, hey, man, she knows so, so women. So, sobering reminder right you know it's a blessing when when you you cross paths with um you know those that you know have endured that right and you know their husband father you know brother decided you know made made the ultimate sacrifice you know for you know like everybody says for the country it is for the country but i i tell you it's more for you know the those that we love that we served with you know those guys you know laid down their <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, brother. I actually. No, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. 
it's a, it's a, so it's it's just such a, it's a sobering moment but it's like right now is even like a sobering reminder like for me like i don't <laughs> i don't openly have these type of conversations you know unless i'm catching up with an old friend right or i'm on kind of a platform to to share a bit and uh you know just even talking about it man it's like it touches me because you know i'm i'm capable i'm here with my family you know with my wife and my two kids and you know my loved ones uh because of the stuff that those guys did um and that sacrifice and in those families you know it's it's the same type of devastation that i saw in the wake of my brother's death you know they they endure you know the untenable um and uh you know, i love them for for that i love them for the suffering that they're willing to endure um so that we can live the lives that we have and uh yeah, I can't thank them enough. So anytime I get to talk about it, right, it just comes yeah. up in conversation or you interact with with somebody that has endured that, you know, it's a blessing. Yeah. Because it's it, it's a visceral reminder. I mean, case in point, like I, you know, it, it, it that the emotion comes from some place genuine and it and it doesn't surface uh like that in a typical topic of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, that touch point, being able to appreciate, you know, what, uh, what was sacrificed, not just over the last 20 years, but from the inception of this country up to today. So that we yeah. can have these freedoms and options and opportunities that we do. It's, uh, you know, something I think about, uh, every day, I try to weave it into the, weave it into the novels, um, you know, bring it up as appropriate. Um, but it's, uh, something that I think, uh, you know, we would be a stronger country if, uh, if we thought about it a little bit more. And just appreciated those sacrifices a little bit more would probably cause us to put a little more thought into some of our decisions um, at the tactical, operational, strategic level as a country. Um, yeah, you know, totally. Um, because we have these freedoms for a reason. Uh, yeah, bro. That's because people sacrificed everything for us. So, yeah, man, we're thankful for it. Yeah, big time. Man, let's take a stretch. Let's stretch our legs and come back and talk about Protect and uh, our time at Buds. So uh, we just took a little break and I filled up with hydration. So right, what's uh, one of these? But I ran inside. So this one is the uh, is the lemonade. But I ran inside and grabbed the raspberry, and uh, yeah, filled up to to hydrate a little bit. Awesome. <sighs> yes, protect. But before we get there, so we're this is where we cross paths. So we're 2012 right now. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, 2011. Well, yeah, you were there probably 2012, yeah, right? Yeah, I got there 2012. I, was, I showed up like late 2010, early 2011. Okay. And uh, uh, I think it was like... So you've been there over a year already by the time I got there. I was there for a little while. And like by the time you showed up, I was I was kind of... I had had, you know, my brother, I think, passed at that point, And I was kind of on that track to transition. And then... We, we spent a bunch of time hanging out in your office on the grinder. <laughs> yeah. So that was an interesting one. So buds, so I'd already, so I came back from the last deployment, took a breath and was like, okay, time to get out. Family needs me. Um, three kids, middle child with severe special needs. Um, mm -hmm. I've done, you know, I think uh, everything I've wanted to do in the SEAL teams essentially. And uh, now creeping up on 20, time to get out. Um, and I was very honest with that about that too, but they still kept putting me on that track, you know, to be a, yeah, a CEO or whatever. So you're doing the ops job. You have to do an ops officer. People listening, you have to be an ops officer and then you have to do an XO and then you're a CEO and in between you do staff jobs. So all looked pretty horrible 
to me at that yep. stage, especially if I knew exactly what I wanted to do next, which was write thrillers. Um, so uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I was not honest about that. I never even said it. You know, I never even, uh, it's not honesty. It's just like, uh, you know, I was very honest about getting out. Like, I'm going to yeah. get out here soon. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, right. Um, it had been a, a good run up to that point, you know. Um, but I got to got to Bud's, got to take a look around, uh, decided it's time to time to move on. It was a good, good run here. But uh, for those listening also, after you do your troop commander tour, uh, task unit commander downrange, that's probably the last time you're going to tactically maneuver uh, guys on the battlefield again. Um, after that, you're going to a staff job, an ops job, an XO job, another staff job, a CO job. But by that point, now you have, let's say, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years between your last tactical engagement and leading troops. Um, so it's a uh, SEAL team commanding officer. Sounds uh, pretty impressive, but really you don't want one of those guys next to you going into a door because uh, they decided to go out on an op with you because they haven't done anything in 10 years, you know? So uh, it's uh, it was time to move on. It was time to move on. Um, but yeah, we got to hang out in the office there. The OPSO office on the grinder um, yep. had some interesting which leadership. The, um, which people. the grinder doesn't even exist anymore. Bro. I know. I heard <laughs> like, I heard that. I heard, I forget who told me that, but it, uh, it like just disappeared one day. Like they didn't even let anybody know it was happening really. Right. Dude, I, I was so bummed. Like we had our centennial buds class reunion. Um, so three, four, seven was graduating and I'm like all stoked to go back. And I realized that the grinder, the entire grinder got demoed. Like I think demoed like everything. <sighs> and, uh, and then like, I think that graduation was actually at like the old seal team five compound. They just like created, and I think that's where buds has been temporarily. Like they moved it over to the, to the old SEAL Team 5-7 area. They have like frog feet on the ground and stuff. You know what would have been really yeah, cool? So Bob. If they had um, kind of let people know or something and somehow destroyed the grinder in a way that preserved the frog feet, you know, oh, bro, like totally. taking them out and then like uh, auction them off for a charity or foundation or something. Um, yeah. But like take them out. There's got to be a way to do that, right? It's 2020 what it's 2023 right now. Um, right. like I feel like we have to be able to remove <laughs> the frog feet somehow. And we have uh, the tech, we have the we technology have the te I think, I think, to saw, to saw cut. Those I would think, out, I, think. I think we could figure that out somehow. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that would have been really cool to like, be able to oh. you know, auction those off or something like that. Or I don't know, do yeah. something, something with them rather than just destroy all awesome, that history. Yeah. It's like, Oh man. So for people listening, you put, uh, they have these, uh, frog fins, flipper things on the ground, uh, and you line up there, uh, similar to like Marine Corps, right? They do something, they have the, the, the feet that you stand on at Marine Corps boot camp. Um, here in buds, we had these flipper things on the ground. Um, and that would have been really cool. Yeah, like little, yeah. little yeah. frog feet. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been, that would have been pretty cool to be able to like, Oh, I know, have, dude. you know, have one, have preserve a little bit of that history kind of cool but they just destroyed it right they just freaking i guess it. yeah I, I don't know i mean maybe I they did they I, don't, I don't know I've, i have no idea maybe they did do that maybe they did think ahead and they're doing that i, I just don't, don't know about it yeah i don't i don't know not that i heard of i i mean i would have loved to have i mean i would have put some in yeah. the back i mean there's like dude so much i guess it's just so much history right like in those like yeah. everybody that has come through the program like that has stood on those things i mean you i mean it's kind of epic yeah to, to think about it yeah, I mean, how many we have Medal of Honor recipients, people that aren't obviously aren't here anymore with us, um, but there's so much history yeah. there. I mean, I, I hope they saved them. I mean, it seems like, like, <laughs> I wonder who was in charge at the time. 
<laughs> there's like a where there's like a warehouse someplace like, Maybe. With, like the uh, the, ark, the ark the ark yeah. of the covenant exactly. and a bunch of uh, frog feet I hope in so a box or something I hope so <laughs> I would be so sad to think that they didn't even think about that. But maybe yeah, they did. Bro. Maybe they did. I I'm totally assuming here that they didn't. I could be totally hopefully, wrong. Hopefully, with your hopefully with your reach, somebody reaches out and is like, "Dude, uh, I well, have, I have some." That'd be awesome. That would be rad. Yeah, no, that would be incredible. To to, uh, I, or I have to think that if they did that, some enterprising young seals um, raided whatever dumpster they were in and oh, took them. Totally. That'd be cool. Yeah, dude. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, they just have like a, a like five Tacomas. Yeah, exactly, of, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. I I hope so. I hope there were some enterprising young frogmen that did that. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, get in touch with me if uh, if you did. I'd, um, I'd like to know. I'd like to know. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> I won't tell anybody either. You know, if you did, if you snuck them out of there, because uh, now they're going to go after you for stealing government property. Now that they're in a dump somewhere, they'll still come after you uh, for You're that done, sort of a thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Someone will be upset about it. Someone will find a rule. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so we're at, uh, you're over at SQT, which is nice because you're, across the way a little bit. So you're not right there at the flagpole. You're like a little bit away, a mile or so, whatever it was. A um, little bit away. Yeah. yeah so other, kinda, si other, other side of the compound. Other side of the base. Kind of on the Ampe base. Yep. Yep. Which I, think, uh, I, I think SQT is still going on over there. Is I, it? I believe, I, I think so, but I think I think they're still over there. Yeah, Everything cool, else has been cool moved group now of, at this yeah, point. Down south, right? Down to the elephant cage area. Yeah. yeah. I still have not, I have not seen in person the new compound, but I've heard it's pretty remarkable. I heard it's pretty seen, cool. Like, pictures and stuff. Yeah, you can shoot there. I mean, I heard there's some pretty. It's pretty cool, from what I understand. I'd like to check it out at some at some point. Uh, but uh, I think I think at the reunions, don't they do like one of the West Coast reunions down there, and you can walk through or I, something? I think so. I have not gone, dude. I I had a friend send a video of like the pool there, which is like insane. It, there's like go plat structure coming out of it, and like a I think it's like a twenty foot dive well. Dang. So it's yeah, it's like a Sea World pool. Wow. It's crazy. <laughs> that is wild. Man, yeah, I'd like to check that out. That would be would be really cool. Um, yeah, SQT buildings are still those, those I mean, they were great for, for what they were. You got classrooms, kind of a staging area, place to work out and and do all that sort of thing. And then off you go to your different different training venues. So um, totally. so you're doing that and under uh uh is it under SQT is junior officer training course? Is that how it how it is? Yeah. So it's a part yeah, like of a, yeah. Jotsy fell under SQT. Uh, I think that came later, but like by the time I got there, that's how it was. And uh, yeah, had some really phenomenal guys that came through as instructors there too. I mean, we had uh, we had, we had a guy. Uh, I'll just call him Joe Brad. Um, uh, he was a so uh, awesome, so army awesome. enlisted, you know, operator at, yep. at the highest levels from the army's top and, tier special operations unit. And uh, yep. amazing guy. I hope he's still there. Is he still there as a GS? I don't, you know what? I don't know. I, he, he had been yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, I hope he is. Cause I mean, that guy was oh, wealth of knowledge. That guy was amazing. Like, right. I like a so consummate professional. Mm -hmm. Totally. But yeah, we had him. And then, uh, there was a whole bunch of guys that, that had come over from damn neck and mm -hmm. were running assaults. Like the assault cell at SQT at that point. I mean, dude, it was basically like green team for, uh, the SQT students. Yeah. You had like, you had a bunch of dudes that came from gold and blue and uh and actually Marcus Capone was working as the assaults lead uh during kind of the latter half of my tenure there. Okay. So that's how Marcus and I first connected 
um, at SQT. Anyway, Marcus was like in the middle of like kind of transition as well. Yeah, wasn't he also working as like a stockbroker or something? What was he doing? Like, wasn't he going? He, well, he was networking like heavily into okay. that. Like, and uh, and and ultimately, I think that was his first jump after he he yeah. uh, retired. He ended up going to work in kind of finance. Yeah. Um, and then we lost touch for years, man. Like okay. when I had I left left SQT and you know hadn't seen. I, I got you know I left. I went to grad school and then you know, got into commercial real estate, uh, brokerage. And I think I was at a, a, a seal fundraising event up in, L, uh, like LA mm. and I like, just crossed paths with Marcus. Hadn't seen him in years and, uh, yeah, reconnected with him there. I mean, now Marcus and I are, are close friends, you know, again, like didn't realize how awesome, you know, how much I valued friendship and the connections that I had from the teams until I didn't have it. And yeah. I was out and kind of alone and unafraid, but, yeah. uh, yeah, Marcus and I have become close friends and, uh, yeah. And he's doing some tremendous work on, on the nonprofit side, uh, through, uh, veterans exploring treatment solutions. Yeah. I want to talk is, to you. I definitely want to talk to you about that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're together at buds when you make that, when you, when you leave, um, and, uh, go into commercial real estate and, and all that stuff. What is that journey? How was it like leaving? Cause I mean, from the outside looking in, it looked like you got out and just started crushing. Um, but yeah, everybody you, thinks that, right? Yeah, I think we all, like we all, we all, yeah. And we all think that right. For like everybody. Like, well, I don't know. No, I mean, you see some people get out and you're like, Ooh, bro. Um, Ooh. that was the other part. That was the other, um, <laughs> That, that was the other good part about being at Bud's uh, and being in that operations seat there because everyone had to call if they wanted a tour. Um, and, you know, I always tried to accommodate, not try, I always accommodated everyone, um, whether <laughs> I was allowed to or not, um, just something I had to get a little more creative with um, because I wanted to help everybody out, you know, on the outside. And, you know, and sometimes it helped them if they could bring their new boss by or whatever, just check it out. And, and you know, totally. And, you know, that place, they're giving tours all the time. And, uh, those senior level officers are bringing people through, taking them to the range, doing all, letting them see hell week. And then all of a sudden when they get out, they're on, Oh, they're working for this person now that they just, uh, you know, took up to La Posta, let them shoot a ton of ammo, blew up all this stuff, you know, saw hell week, all that stuff. And then, you know, uh, they fly off on their private Great. plane after the after they sat in graduation and now they're working for them as a, you know, whatever in their business. It's like, huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, great. great and then they tell us, no, so-and-so right? can't come and do a tour. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was always like, sure. oh, all right. Okay. They must've meant not today, but tomorrow's okay <laughs> when they're gone, you know? Um, Cause I'm always going to hook up the guys, you know? Oh and, dude, there's totally, totally. I mean, some phenomenal opportunities for guys to get, I mean, I remember like, yeah, hosting or like being kind of like the point for like some uh, meet and greet kind of dog and pony up at like, nylon yeah. and you know they uh, all the guys that are running ranges as the uh range safety officers and oic's like we're able to kind of connect with guys and i, I think good. it did it it yeah. bore fruit right like some of those guys end up getting finding follow-on mentors and yeah. and opportunities to work for for some of those same individuals yeah. uh you know a year later two years later so yeah yeah definitely but some uh, of that i'm, I'm talking about more the the person who does it at that level and then says no to some I can list a guy totally. that gets out yeah. and uh, has a job and wants to like take their boss by or wants to take a f family friend by or something like that, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's 100%. Yeah. And, uh, and so I always make that happen somehow. Um, but I also saw 
how hard it is for a lot of people to leave that life behind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, totally. they're running and gunning one day and then the next day they're out essentially and stepping into something that they think they know, but maybe mm-hmm. not really because they haven't yep. done a few months as an intern or whatever else to really see what these, uh, what this industry is all about. And maybe it's not really what they thought. And now they have regrets yeah. and all that sort of thing. So point being, I saw how, how hard it was uh, for people to leave that life behind by all those phone calls that I would get. And, um, that's why when I got out, I was like, okay, I think it's time to make a physical and psychological break with the military. And, uh, yeah. as much as I love Coronado, California, um, take off and head to the head of the mountains with the family and raise, you know, raise them up here, raise the kids up here. Um, but I got to see that, you know, I could maybe conceptualize it beforehand, but in that seat, taking those calls and, uh, trying to help as many people as I, as I could, um, I, I saw like, Oh, maybe, maybe it's better to, you know, make a clean break. And, uh, yeah. at least for me, everybody's gonna have a different path, right? Everybody's gonna have a different path and it's going to be a foundation. So I looked at it for me as, Hey, this 20 years is a foundation upon which to build, um, going forward. And it was a, was a great run and I'm appreciate appreciative of everything. And, uh, so humbled to have been a, a part of such an amazing team. Um, and then also I read my whole life and I prepped my whole life also for the next stage. I wasn't really thinking about it. I just knew that that's what I would do, um, when I got out, but I didn't make any active, you know, moves until that last year and a half in when I started writing the first book. Yeah. But, um, uh, but I'm obviously studying warfare, have that experience downrange now, um, read all these thrillers my whole life, um, and have this experience in the SEAL teams and all that stuff. So it's a, I looked at it as a foundation upon which to build just like anything in life. But, um, but for you, when you got out, like I got to see it, you know, cause I'm now, yep. I got to zip over to be the uh, OIC of the uh, junior officer training course with Joe Brad, which was awesome. I love, that oh, was one I of my, that. Yeah, Daddy, I, I forgot that you ended up going over there. Yeah. Cause it. I left the opso position cause they, they cause they cycle gotcha. you through. So you like get your box check or whatever as an yep. officer yep. or whatever. So I did got my little eval, you know, whatever. And so, okay, now somebody else needs to come in and do that. So I couldn't get out of that seat fast enough. That was, you know, I just being behind a desk was not my thing. Uh, as I sit here behind a desk, uh, but in that stage, you know, in that, in that stage, um, but Dude, uh, you were such, yeah. What I didn't realize too, knowing you, how voracious of a reader you were and how well-versed in history and military history you were. I think I, I like came over to your house one day and I was just like, so blown away with like how, intimately <laughs> familiar you were with like all this military history. I'm like, dude, I feel like I am like inferior right now. Actually, <laughs> like, I don't know any of this stuff. But yeah. I mean, dude, it was, it was actually really impressive. So you see was, all the books. Was, did you see all like the books or something totally. on the bookshelf? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I saw books everywhere. And I like, like you were the way you like, I pointed at one and you're like, you actually not only recognized it, you could give me like a quick synopsis that was very like well thought out. I'm oh, like, dude, this is amazing. So it was a, it was a dimension of you that I I didn't even realize existed. So <laughs> yeah, you. yeah, it makes all the sense in the world now. <laughs> now that you sit here behind a desk, yeah, uh, having authored uh, the series, so, yeah. yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. Now, <laughs> uh, that was awesome. I mean, we, you and I just connected over there because we you know had uh, you know we had some like, similar experiences downrange, I think, and just uh, mm-hmm. kind of the same we're on the same page in a lot of ways, and uh, we're dealing with some of the same uh, you know people. In leadership positions and you gotta 
you know, you got to figure it out and make things happen and all that stuff. But it was great to get out of the ops officer seat and then into uh, junior officer training course because that was so cool. Because now you're getting these junior officers uh, as they're starting down this path. Um, they've been pulled out of uh, their class that they went through buds with. Now they're with you for, what was it, a month? Is it a four week? I can't remember right now. But uh, yeah, I think it had to be like two weeks or not two weeks, two months. Was it two months? Okay. Yeah. It was, it was like a, a good chunk. Yeah. It was a good chunk. And then um, their class went on to go to SEAL qualification training for six months. They would pop out, do their two months here at junior officer training course, and then jump in with the next class that would go into yeah. SEAL qualification training. So they have a gr new group to, to lead. Um, but man, that was so cool. And Joe Brad coming from the unit that he was coming from had so much knowledge, so much experience. Um, and yeah, that was, and it was great to take a breath and pass on some of those lessons, like think about those yeah. lessons, uh, and then think about how to articulate them to the next generation. Um, and, uh, and it was just, it was just a fantastic experience. I love that. And you're away yeah. from the flagpole. You're far, a little farther away. You're over at the SQT building, which was fantastic. Oh, dude, I, I loved it, man. I mean, I loved being able to kind of step back and share experiences mm -hmm. with guys that were like super hungry, right. To hear about it. Like, cause you kind mm -hmm. of take it for granted. You're like, Oh man, I got all this stuff and I don't talk to it, talk with anybody about it. Mm -hmm. And then you have a bunch of like young, you know, both, both officers and enlisted that are coming through SQT and you can share like the latest lesson learned, lessons oh, yeah. learned from your Afghan deployment and, you know, kind of working in a joint environment and all this stuff. So it's yeah. like all great stuff that like, you know, frankly, we had very little exposure to, you know, as we were coming up as, oh, yeah. as young officers. So I, I had zero. Yeah. So it was like yeah, all baptism by fire. Zero. Yeah, <laughs> it was all baptism by fire. Um, but it was cool. I got to put together a reading list, and uh, and which I still use today yeah, yeah. as part of a reading list section of my website. And that forms the, I pick one book from that military reading list that I put together. And I put one of those into my monthly reading list selections on my website every month. Um, so good. But, uh, but yeah, that was an incredible experience. I love that. Love being away from the flagpole and just having kind of a small, you feel like you're part of a small team again, which was, which yeah. was great. We're working with great people. Um, but that's when I got to see you transition out to the private sector. And, yep. uh, I mean, it looked like, like you, you knew what you wanted to do from my perspective anyway, was yeah. like, you were very clear about what you wanted to do. Uh, yep. and you had a, you had a way to get there and off you went to do it. Um, so that's yep. what it looked like from the outside, but inside, what are you, what are you feeling right now as you make that, uh, transition to the private sector? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think I, I definitely was very methodical, right? I was approaching mm -hmm. it from a pragmatic, very black and white, a monochromatic mm -hmm. standpoint. Like I'm going to identify like grad school, spe specific education to check a box, to get me into an industry that I had kind of networked into, mm -hmm. which was commercial brokerage and commercial real estate as a whole. Yeah. And, uh, you know, did my homework, interviewed and did all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I did approach it very methodically. Um, it didn't realize it at the time, but I basically, I also wanted to kind of reinvent myself and prove that I could do something outside of being just a SEAL. Mm -hmm. And, you know, went into kind of an, I, I would call like that transition kind of obscure and like atypical for a SEAL to transition into commercial real estate. Now, maybe it's a little bit more uh, prevalent you know, with all the support structure mm -hmm. that exists out there for transition, right? Guys are yeah. being introduced to finance and real estate and tech and you name it that are would be kind of non-existent yeah. <laughs> career paths for a, a former SEAL officer. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to prove myself. You know, I thought that was interesting. I'd be lying if I didn't say that, like, I wasn't, there wasn't a lure behind kind of the financial upside potentially. Mm -hmm. So, and, and 
I think, frankly, I started to put some of that stuff ahead of why I should be choosing certain things. And mm. I think the why, you know, looking back now should have always been the people, mm. right? It doesn't, and it's the advice I give to younger guys or other people that are making a transition. I'm like, Hey, I, I don't care what field you go into. Now, granted, it helps if you're passionate about that particular industry, but you need to find the right folks. Like you need to mesh and have connection because if you don't, you know, you're never going to truly realize greatness in, in whatever you do. So I think that, you know, that was something I've learned through kind of trial and error. Yeah. And, and then on the personal front, you know, I, I'll kind of take it all the way back to my earlier comment about kind of the inception of uh, emotional compartmentalization. I, I was super closed off emotionally. Mm. And, you know, at that point I had one, I had a daughter, um, you know, I would later have a son in 2016 and I was not emotionally uh, available yeah. for my family. And I was dissociating from kind of a lot of those issues mm -hmm. by pouring myself into this new transition and, and kind of fabricating a new identity um, and, and really trying to prove myself in, in that new kind of, you know, unique, obscure industry and, uh, and, and still kind of ignoring the fact that, you know, I got a lot of years of emotional compartmentalization, uh, you know, in, in the box yeah. and I haven't, haven't addressed any of it. And, you know, I, you know, I, I think a lot of that stuff started to kind of, uh, percolate, you know, probably four, say four or five years post-transition, okay. um, where, you know, I started to deal with you know, pretty kind of pretty intense apathy um, and an anger, which, you know, you know me fairly well at this point. Like I'm a pretty even keeled, not angry person. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I had like a very, I had a very short fuse at that point, like where I just feel agitation and, and all of these things that were very uh, abnormal huh. for, for Nick as, yeah. as I thought I knew Nick. And, right. you know, I think my wife, had been, I mean, probably even like in the latter years of deployments and, and kind of transitioning had pointed it out, right. It pointed out like, you know, as we'd have a flare up or a fight or a disagreement, like, you know, you're not the same person would be kind of the, the party line. And oh. I would say, you know, I defensive, like I wasn't even aware of it, but I'd be like, you're crazy. I'm, I'm the same person I've always been. I'm just doing a job and I'm, now I'm doing a new job and I'm, you know, rationalizing all the reasons why I'm I'm not present with the people that I should be present for now that yeah. I'm out of the military. And uh, yeah, I started really, I came to grips with that stuff, um, you know, in the midst of this kind of transition and, you know, trying to find a new purpose and a new identity. And, you know, I think what we're seeing now is, you know, a lot of a lot of guys, a lot of veterans. I mean, and I can speak specifically from like the, the Navsoft uh, background. Uh, they're dealing with a lot of the same stuff, right? It's, it is like kind of a loss of purpose, identity and all that, but it's, it's all the emotional baggage and, and the, the emotional compartmentalization that allows us to be so effective yeah. as, as seals. Right. And, and it transcends the military. I mean, if you're an effective individual in a high stress profession, you know, emotion typically just gets in the way, right? When, you know, empathy and, mm. and kind of emotional attachment and connection. Uh, so I, you know, me and a lot of guys have struggled with that. And, 
you know, it kind of was a, it, it was a struggle to be very, very honest for a long time. And, you know, I had to kind of figure things out and, and I try to identify ways to, to kind of address the, the internal issues and the root cause of those, those feelings and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of situations that started to unfold. Man. Yeah. Cause yeah, that's exciting. I'd go over cause you jumped in at a pretty high level in commercial real estate in San Diego. Um, and yep. I came over to your office and it was a, near the same place from our daughter was sailing at the time. And, um, yeah. so we had lunch together one day and that, uh, uh, I remember exactly where it, where it was, where your office was, parking lot was, um, doc was the whole, the whole thing. Uh, so yeah. you jump in at a pretty, pretty high level and with some, I mean, it seems like you're just, you know, on a path to, uh, to crush sure. it there, but inside you're, dealing with some of that and your wife notices it first, which is typically, I hate to say typically, but I've heard that before. I've heard, I've heard from spouses before that, uh, that they notice things before the, like the service member does, you know? Well, bro, it's, I mean, think about it. They, you know, your spouse is the, one of the closest people to you, if not the closest. Right. And they are like literally on the sideline watching this entire transformation, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're there as you're deploying, as you're working up, as you're deploying again, you know, and, and transitioning out of the military, they're, they're just watching it. So like, of course they have this clear, clear perspective of what has, tra- mm. what has, what has transpired over the course of a career. Yeah. Um, and you're in the middle of it, right? It's like, right. yeah, you're not, you don't have the 50,000 foot vantage point. You're, yeah. you're on ground level, right? Doing, uh, doing CQB, right? right? You're not, you're <laughs> clearing not, your corner. You're, not, you're clearing your corner. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You're not seeing the, the tactical, uh, or the, the strategic yeah. overview that the wife, uh, typically does. So yeah. yeah, it's, she, she definitely had a great vantage point and, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I mean on the outside, yeah, I think I was doing all the things I needed to do to kind of progress on the outside, but it's the internal struggle, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, what I've learned is like, you know, the material things don't, they don't drive happiness, right? And and success on that front, I would say it doesn't. It absolutely is not a driver of of joy and happiness um, in your life. And and it's, you know, it helps. It can help, right? It can help alleviate discomfort and all that. But you know, it takes digging deep internally and kind of addressing that stuff to to truly start to embrace, you know, no, no true happiness and, yeah. and joy. Yeah. So when do you start to recognize it? When do you like, Hey, my wife might be onto something here. Um, cause I remember, so you're doing the commercial real estate thing, but you're also starting to explore some other options yep. too. Um, some other, uh, entrepreneurial type type ventures. Um, yep. and, uh, is it, is it during those processes that you kind of find out that like, Oh, maybe I have some things I need to, to work on here or deal with here or address or like, what, what is that? Yeah. What, what is this four five, six, seven year time frame Like when you're out in commercial real estate, you know, in this sprint and then start to explore some other kind of ventures. And then what, how does it come about that? You're like, Hey, you know, maybe I should take a breath here and, uh, and, uh, address a couple of things. Well, I think it was like, I was hiding, I was, uh, running from it unknowingly by staying extremely busy. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Running, you know, running my career in, in brokerage, mm-hmm. starting some CPG, uh, companies and then, you know, trying to manage everything else. And yeah, I was so busy. I wasn't even aware until, uh, it didn't matter how busy I was. It, it got so bad that it just surfaced. Right. Where I like, I basically was incapacitated with, with apathy and, and, and I had to address it. And I, and I've shared that, like, I've had a mo I had a moment kind of, 
you know, going to the the climbing gym that I go to and just sitting in my car and just kind of being destitute and, uh, and calling my wife and, and actually telling her that I'm like, I am lost right now. And like, and I, and, and words don't, uh, properly frame kind of the destitution in the moment where I, I, I basically lost a luster for, for life. And, uh, and I, and I could have, you know, kind of waved the right white flag and, and kind of surrendered in the moment. Uh, but it just, it, it wasn't in me. Right. I was like, as much as I, I, I didn't think I had anything in me left to fight with. Um, I, I started to just kind of make immediate steps, take, take one step towards something that may be a solution. And, you know, and, and in the moment it was, I'm going to go to a doctor, right. I'm going to go to a physician and just say, Hey, what, I'm going to tell you how I'm feeling. I'm going to tell you kind of the deep, dark shit that I'm starting to kind of, you know, have to face mm-hmm. begrudgingly. And, and it went through kind of blood work, sat with a doc and, you know, they, they, they framed it as a, a kind of a major clinical depressive episode, which actually was surprising to me. Cause I like, I didn't frame it as, you know, I wasn't expressing like sadness or, you know, you know, it was just like apathy. It was a, just like a lack of feeling as opposed to feeling sad. Mm-hmm. So that was a surprise. You know, the the path that a typical Western physician at that time wanted to to put me on was antidepressants um, or an antidepressant. So mm-hmm. a serotonin uh, mm-hmm. drug to be able to kind of pull me out of that. And, you know, I, I had talked to friends that had, I mean, hey, granted, sometimes those things are great and they can be a godsend for people. And and they definitely are a tool, mm. but I've had friends that had very terrible experiences with them, where you know it only further flattened emotion and flattened their ability to kind of connect and and empathize. So uh, I I tried to I sought some other alternatives. So I, I never you, picked did you the try those? Up. Oh, you didn't do it. Never did. I was prescribed antidepressant, an antidepressant, um, and and it, I remember it got sent to the pharmacy and I used to get the little ping on my phone. Right. Like, hey, you got a prescription to pick up. And like, you didn't do uh, it. I never picked, never picked it up, man. And okay. I, um, initially, you know, they had actually recommended, uh, uh, therapy, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. And, uh, I didn't do it. What falls under cognitive behavioral therapy? What are the like, kind of pillars of uh, that? So it was like, uh, it, like going, it basically there's basic talk therapy to kind of change. Oh, like sit on the couch, like, like on the couch type thing. Sit, sit on a couch, yeah. Talk about things, unpack it, try to kind of create some neurologic changes through behavior and change behavior patterns. And uh, I just wasn't, I didn't buy off on it at that point, right? I was very reluctant to talk mm-hmm. to somebody that wasn't a friend that I trusted, and uh, I ignored it, right? So I ignored the SSRIs. I ignored uh, therapy. What's, what does SSRI stand for again? Uh, selective serotonin, uh, reuptake inhibitor. And what is it? And, <laughs> so, and that's, that's the, uh, what is that then? The, the antidepressants or that's. That's antidepressants. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I Got can't it. believe I actually pulled that one that's off. That's pretty that good. Acronym. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's, uh, and that, so antidepressants fall under that. Okay. So that's what an yeah. antidepressant is. Okay. Just, just to help you with, with depression or anxiety to, yeah. or really depression. Yeah. Um, Oh, did you, when you were in your car, when you were at that, at that low point in your car outside the gym, did you go any climb after that call? No, I didn't. I think I, uh, I think I just turned around and called my wife was out of town with the kids. So I just, I opened up. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I had a lifeline, right? I had, you know, I was, I at at least was willing to open up to my wife and not 
just internalize it completely mm-hmm. and feel shame or and and that stuff happens right so it, that i that that memory is etched in my mind because i think it was the the it was a key decision point because if i didn't choose openness and connection and vulnerability in that moment um you know who knows where i i would have gone with that because it, it wasn't a good place for me and uh um and and frankly it's you know that it's a battle that a lot of guys and gals across this country and the world are you know deal with right is you know facing that opportunity um or and being vulnerable and connected um uh, and and kind of bucking the the trend and and trying to you know kind of stay brave even though you know it's stigmatized yeah. still you know i think we're doing better but um yeah i'm very thankful that i you know i had somebody mm-hmm. that was there and willing to listen to me and not judge me and then you know also that i was able to kind of you know check my ego at the door and actually say hey i need help um yeah. i'm not doing well man and are you still in commercial real estate at this point or you are have you left that behind no, I'm still in it. Yeah, I have a, I have a, a firm still doing that. I've oh, and right phenomenal. now, I, I meant then. Yeah, th- so I thought you, I didn't yeah, know you still. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I'm yeah, so focused yeah, on the yeah. protex stuff. You know, I thought you. Yeah, I am. I, I mo, uh, serial entrepreneur. Yeah. Nice. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're probably jumping ahead, but I'm. Uh, yeah, still. Okay, still so at the time, business. you're still managing all those things, still working on those it. deals, yep. like all those yep. things that you're that you're doing, and you have a couple kind of side hustles as well on other, the entrepreneurial side. Other things I got going. Yeah. So I, my plate was full. Yeah. For sure. So you'd filled the plate yeah. and that wasn't enough and you hit this point. And so what, how do you explore these different options then you, and how did you know to say no to the antidepressants for you? Uh, is it because you had those friends who it didn't work for? You did some research online or why did you not pick up that, um, do that prescription for you? Yeah. For me, it was just, I, I had heard some of the symptoms, right? Yeah. Like, uh, that, that come as like, a like an aftershock, you know, for, for the, for the antidepressant, like emotional flatness, you know, kind of Mm. issues with kind of like just not feeling good physically. And Mm. maybe that was enough for me to say. Yeah. Probably for you. Yeah. Cause you're always in incredible shape. If it was going to make me feel lethargic or I was going to feel like I was going to retain water weight and not be efficient (laughs) climbing and all that, like Uh that might've been enough. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I ultimately, you know, I tried an alternative modality. I tried uh, something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm-hmm. And, and I've spoke at length about that on a couple different platforms. I think initially with Tim Ferriss back in like 19. Um, and it was, it's, you know, they, they're using a magnet basically impulsing kind of frontal lobe to to kind of stimulate uh, neurologic activity. Yeah. And it was a, it was a Band-Aid. It was good. It, huh. it, it provided kind of like a, a lifesaver in uh-huh. a kind of a moment of, of need. Um, so I did that for, you know, four to five weeks, felt good for a long, you know, probably three to five months Yeah. and then had to go, went back again cause it was starting to fade. <laughs> and the second time through it kind of faded and it just didn't work. And, yeah. and I kind of got, if honestly, at that point, I, I, it, I actually really was a little bit worse off because I, it kind of gave me hope and then kind of dashed my hopes. And uh, I was kind of left with, I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't get this under control. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So at that point I was, you know, kind of struggling and kind of, uh, uh, in limbo trying to determine what the next step is going to be. Yeah. And, you know, that led, you know, ultimately to, to cut across. I mean, I, I started to connect with a handful of guys from the teams actually in the TMS clinic, you know, there's okay. a couple of buddies that I had served with. So did you go to the one know, that's right off the five freeway as you're heading North? 
There was like this one. one it, there was one right there, yeah. and then I went to one out in like kind of a little bit east of there in say like North County, San Diego. Okay. Um, there was a couple folks doing it, and I actually I crossed paths in the waiting room with a couple team guys that mm-hmm. had gotten out, and yeah, lo and behold, like maybe uh, the TMS wasn't actually the thing that made the difference in that moment. Is actually like connecting with some guys that I trusted. Yeah, and. And we sh- we were sharing, right? I mean, we had nothing to lose at that point, yeah. so we're kind of very very vulnerable. You can't be like, and, "Hey, what are you here for?" Like, it's you're there for the uh, very yeah, similar nothing. things. Yeah. yeah. Oh exactly. no, I'm not here for the right. uh, brains, the brain magnet yeah. therapy. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I'm here. They, they're doing another alternative right. therapy for for something not depression related. So, yeah. I I think that that connection it kind of opened me up to kind of sharing for the first time. So I'm like, yeah. okay, you know what? This guy's awesome. I respect him as an operator and as a team guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's dealing with the same shit that I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, you know what? I, it it kind of opened me up to kind of being vulnerable or being open to kind of talking about it and not being afraid of the judgment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that, that was actually a very pivotal moment. I mean, it's the power of connection, right? Wow. If, if you get connected and you retain connection in your life, it it's kind of that magic tool that, you know, kind of starts to catapult direction, regardless of what we're talking about. And yeah. the the connection, and I guess the comfort that I I had with vulnerability through connection in that moment is is what led me to connect with a handful of other guys that I had met or known or served with in the SEAL teams. Mm-hmm. And uh those guys uh individually at different moments over the next, I would say six to twelve months uh, shared, uh, experiences that they had with psychedelics, um, through nonprofit work that, you know, Marcus Capone and his wife, Amber Capone, um, had kind of kicked off and it was in its grassroots kind of infancy at that point. Um, the rumor mill at that point, I think was probably, uh, Marcus and Amber are, uh, fundraising to have team guys go to Mexico to do drugs. (laughs) So that was probably that was probably the party line yeah. at, at the moment, uh, but it, for me it was like I went I I ran into old buddies and some guys that I a couple seals that like uh, I deeply respected as operators. I mean, mm-hmm. one of which uh, was at on the East Coast uh, at that command for his entire career, an iconic operator, and I didn't even think he knew my name. I mean, I think I interfaced with him as like a platoon commander taking my platoon through like an interop over uh, uh, at the command. And I saw him at a trade show, you know, because I was I was doing some of the, the entrepreneurial stuff on the on the product side. And dude, thank God he opened up to me. I mean, as like he, a, he remembered my name, which I was like, uh, dude, I'm like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't uh, I don't get uh you know, star shock or, yeah, or star kind struck, of enamored yeah. with starstruck with anybody. Uh, but, but you know, I, I, somebody like that is, I deeply respect. He's like yeah. the kind of seal that I wanted to be. Right. I wanted to be an operator like him. Mm-hmm. I'd still tell him that if I saw him right now mm-hmm. and he rem- remembered who I was and I don't know how the hell we got on the topic of, uh, psychedelics, but, like, but he shared with me, shared his experience. And, uh, and I'm I'm thankful to this day for that vulnerability and that share because I'm like, oh, I'm like, I think in that moment before that, I'm like, I don't do drugs. Uh, I didn't even smoke cigarettes. I didn't dip. I probably had a drinking problem, but it wasn't kind of like <laughs> completely out of control. But uh, yeah, never. Wouldn't even wasn't even on my radar. And uh, and 
his story was not uh, in a silo. I had three or four other friends. And then ultimately the close friend of mine that I uh, referred to back from our 06 deployment, um, breacher, automatic weapons gunner, uh, shared, uh, I got to see a transformation in him. Wow. And uh, yeah, a beautiful transformation as in like, I saw a version of him that I don't think I even knew before. Yeah. Like I knew him as a much more closed off, serious kind of mm -hmm. uh, violent, could be violent, right? When, when violence is necessary type of a person. And uh, I saw him light up, you know, I saw, I saw a kind, mm. caring, connected, happy person. Yeah. And I just wanted that rather. Like I, I really, I wanted that. And I think at that moment that was, that was what I needed. And I, I, I said, okay, you know, sign me up, you know, for, for crazy, uh, the crazy psychedelic experience. Wow. Did that, you, did you talk to your wife about it or did you decide you were going to do it regardless? Did you, um, uh, cause I know people that have I, gone down and done the ayahuasca thing, you know, so I know those, yep. those guys who have gone down there and done that in the jungle thing with the guide and the, you know, that sure. guides you through your experience and the whole thing. And then know people that have also done it very controlled, um, you know, environment. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's remarkable, um, what it can, what it can do. And so how, how yeah. did you, how did you do it? Did you, how many people did you talk to that had done it before? And then, uh, where did you do it and how did, what's that experience yeah. like? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, it was all controlled, um, you know, very professional, uh, cause it's, you know, you know, veterans exploring treatment solutions is now kind of like the, the pinnacle kind of nonprofit effort that's helping, you know, on the research and, and, uh, and political advocacy front, but, but then the grassroots support is providing, you know, guys, you know, former soft, an opportunity to go down and, and have a controlled peak psychedelic experience uh, in a in, retreat setting. In Mexico? In Mexico. Yeah. In, a, in a, you know, Mexico, this is, it's legal. I mean, we're making major headway in the United States right now with, with legalization, um, medical legalization, but we're still a few, couple years off, at least for one modality and, you know, the modalities that are being utilized, you know, for a majority of the the former soft, um, are different. Probably a much yeah. longer path forward to legalization in the states. So, yeah, done in Mexico um, because of the legal legal status. And uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I the the two modalities utilized typically are ibogaine and five meo DMT. So uh, two pretty powerful psychedelics and i mean all all psychedelics can be very powerful right i mean like kind of the the cautionary statement is like do not underestimate them because uh you don't want to <laughs> yeah. it, it definitely uh is a is a serious excursion it's one that i i treat with a lot of respect and reverence um but how much know, research did you do on the out on like after talking to people or did you go into your own research yeah, like books yeah. or online I, or you just like what like I, how much research did you do before you got on that plane and went to to mexico for this experience yeah i mean i did i did uh, some research you know i i had consulted with some other friends i mean i had these friends sharing their experience and then you know the organization as a whole does a tremendous job uh, preparing guys and then supporting them the right way. Because, you know, when you get in the realm of like psychedelics as a healing modality, um, you really have to look at the entirety of the experience. So, you know, you're talking about therapeutic support via coaching prior to uh, guided journal work, um, 
you kind of medical testing and all that just to make sure that you're not getting any type of contraindications, you know, health issues or or other substances you may be on at the time. And then the retreat itself has therapeutic support on site. You know, you have veterans typically that are are there either as volunteers or part of the staff to kind of help, you know, create a safe place um, where guys feel like they can trust the, the people that are working there. And then, you know, the after uh, math is is really where the sweet spot is. Like it's integrative care with therapists or coaches to help people kind of galvanize what has what they took out of the the psychedelic retreat and actually put it into their their daily life, right? Mm-hmm. So like kind of shape new practices, new daily practices um, that are going to give them kind of the long term health, you know, mm-hmm. mental, physical, spiritual health that is lasting because these things are not the magic pill, right? You go into it begrudgingly because your friend told you you should do it because you got some issues and you you ingest, uh, you know, a psychedelic and it's not going to fix it for you. Like, I I truly believe that these things are catalysts to opening up your, you to heal yourself. And, you know, we're really good at, and we've programmed ourselves and been programmed by other people to kind of uh, lock away the things that we're scared of or that threaten us, right? Kind of the, mm-hmm. like that's, it's like the survival mechanism that's ingrained in who we are. And and these things kind of open that gate and they allow you to kind of face those things in a, a very productive way. And then, and then kind of start addressing them and and fixing them and, and kind of bettering those parts of you that need the help in, in kind of your, your daily life afterwards. So, um, there, there's a very, very kind of methodical, yeah. programmatic approach. Um, and, and it's, I, I give Marcus and Amber a tremendous amount of credit. And I give the providers, you know, that are out there down doing the work in mm. Mexico uh, and every everywhere else, you know, where, where veterans are actually seeking um, help. You know, they're they're on the front lines kind of helping guys, you know, take control of their life and and heal mm. and and become you know, kind of the productive, amazing human beings that this world needs, you know, because, you know, we're losing too many people to suicide. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I never got, was confronted with suicide and until, you know, the last several years, I mean, I've, I've had multiple friends take their life. Um, and then a a lot of other friends, you know, guys that I, I, I didn't know well in the teams, but, you know, know of, and, you know, it's, it's not something that, you know, a decision anybody ever needs to make, you know, and then, and, and yeah, I think the the work that's being done at vets and, and the work with psychedelics is, I think it's, it's having a pivotal impact, um, on this fight against, uh, veteran suicide. And hopefully it's going to transcend that. And it's going to open these opportunities up to the rest of the world because mental health is not relegated to the veteran community, right? It's a, it's an issue that plagues our society and especially in a society that's so busy and so distracted and so disconnected. Like, you know, we need it now more than ever. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm blessed. I, I feel very blessed to have been given the opportunity. Yeah. What, uh, what was the, like your workup before you go to Mexico? Like, what do you do for that <laughs> prep? Like when you're, when you're in that pipeline to go down there yeah. and do this and then do what you do on the backside of it, what do you do in the workup phase and how long is it? Is it like a week before a month before? What are you doing uh, in, in, uh, in the buildup to get on that flight and head down? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's evolved, right. And I was tapping into some personal resources as well. Like, uh, I mean, Tim Ferriss has become a, a friend of mine 
Um, and I, I love Tim, Tim, love you. If you're listening to this, you're an amazing human being. And, uh, uh, he, he actually was there for me when I, when I first learned about this, I knew that he was kind of alive in the world of psychedelics and that Renaissance. So, uh, I tapped him for just some, you know, kind of friendly advice and, mm. uh, and, and it adhered to it. So, you know, his advice was meditation. Um, I had never had been a meditator, you know, I, I had a really hard time with it initially. I think a lot of guys do if you've never tried it. Uh, so I really started a meditative practice. Um, journaling was a recommendation. I'm a terrible journaler still, but, uh, <laughs> it's tough, you know, uh, Tim Ferris, I've heard him go through his morning routine and I've heard a few times, you know, on his podcast. And my only thought is this person must not have children. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, like every morning you're shot out of a cannon with these three, uh, totally, it's totally, freaking chaos, you know, to think like, Oh, I'm going to, uh, I can only imagine that what would happen if I told my wife, I know when you're getting that, getting up and getting the dog out and, uh, shoveling the snow <laughs> and plowing the snow and then, uh, making the breakfasts and making the lunches and getting the kids up and getting them dressed. <laughs> and I'm, I just need to take a few minutes here. Well, 20 probably to meditate. And then I'm going to take about another 45 to journal. I'm going to make my special tea in this special way here as I'm contemplating, you know, <laughs> no way, like <laughs> not uh, happening. It's so hard, man. Not so happening. Difficult. Um, yeah, I struggled uh, immensely, but you know, meditation was a big part of it for me. You know, I prioritized it and it yeah. became a big part of it. I'm like, Hey, I'm, you know, I would never go into a combat deployment without working up. Right. So this was, it was truly training and it was workup, uh, you know, just started dressing, uh, the inner me, right. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I had addressed the physical external me for my entire life. And, and frankly, my, I think my brain was atrophied, you know, in my, mm -hmm. my kind of, uh, my ability to kind of address kind of the subconscious and, and yeah. kind of my true self was, was atrophied. So that meditation was, was critical, um, was definitely at that point talking to a therapist and, um, yeah, feel, felt like that was very, very constructive. Yeah. And then, you know, got some tips and like breath work, uh, you know, just kind of some basic breath work, like four, seven, eight type breathing, mm. like box breathing, mm -hmm. And and those were all like little tools that I knew I could lean on during like a uh, a pretty big psychedelic experience because ibogaine, which is very obscure um, as a psychedelic, it's actually classified as an onirogen, which is a dream producing compound. Mm. So um, kind of different than any of the classic psychedelics out there. Where does it come uh, from? Ibog so it comes from a, a there's a number of plants that have that ibogaine alkaloid in them, but Iboga tabernath is a shrub from uh, uh, equatorial Africa, Gabon specifically. Huh. And it, it comes from the root bark of the shrub. And the Bwiti people in Gabon have actually been using it for eons as a rite of passage. Yeah. Um, and, and it's truly a rite of wow. passage, brother. Like it, uh, it produces a, you know, ibogaine is it can be uh, taken in concentrate form, or you can take a boga root bark. I did not do that. A boga root bark uh, in a boga session could be forty-eight to seventy-two hours. I mean, it's like a legit session. And uh, ibogaine is typically like an eight to twelve-hour experience, and it's um, you, you experience ataxia, so it, it impacts the cerebellum. So ataxia is like loss of motor movement control. Mm. So you. I mean, people liken you to like a, a newborn baby giraffe trying to walk around, like uh, mm -hmm. motion-induced vertigo. Like you really don't want to get up and move around on Ibogaine. And uh, 
you're you're pretty much laying down on a mattress. You know, it's all medically supervised with you know heart rate monitor. You know, they have medical staff that are there. You know, cardiac specialist, and um, with closed eyes or covered eyes, it produces. You know, for most of the population. Uh, very lucid visions, like dreamlike visions, yeah. uh, like ultra high definition on the back of your eyelids type th- things. And I'd say, unlike, you know, kind of more classic psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin um, or even ayahuasca, uh, the visions are very rooted in like you. So like mm-hmm. the journaling that you did prior to um, and the questions that you want to ask kind of in the experience you know, typically they, they, they are, they surface in the form of these like beautiful teaching visions mm-hmm. and, and recall of memories. And, you know, I, frankly, I, I had very little recall memories from, from like childhood and mm-hmm. from kind of growing up. And, you know, what I've learned in this experience is like the human brain is like a, the most amazing DVR ever. Like it mm-hmm. literally from the, the moment we are born till the moment we die, like there's a lot in there. And, you know, I had recall of memories from my childhood, um, from a third person perspective, which sounds crazy, but like watching myself as a child with my younger brother playing in our living room or watching GI Joe together. And, uh, you know, memories, you know, looking at like as a child being in my childlike body, like looking at my mom, rocking me, um, holding my parents' hands, walking, as a kid, I mean, just like these beautiful teaching memories. And they were there for a purpose of like answering questions that I wanted to know about my life. You know, am mm-hmm. I, am I, would people be proud of me? You know, and then, and, and, and I, I say that I bring that one up in particular because for me, it, it was, it really was about self-love and, and not being good enough, you know, for me, not loving myself you know, not, not checking the boxes that I feel like I have to check for other people mm. and, uh, and understanding that, you know, you know, I'm loved, man. And I'm, and the people are proud of me and I am doing a good job with my kids and my wife and, uh, yeah, very, very beautiful experience. Mm. And, and from like a physiologic kind of a healing standpoint, tons of research being done. I know vets partnered with Stanford medical school to do, you know, very deep research, uh, study on Ibogaine specifically and, and the soft community. And that, I think that research is going to get launched probably this coming year, but the, the initial findings are prolific according to the, the Stanford team. And you're talking about kind of, um, uh, stimulus of, of kind of brain derived neurogrowth factor, for helping to heal TBI, uh, kind of full reset of the central nervous system, you know, uh, it, you know, uh, neurogenesis. So you're actually like helping to heal the brain and heal kind of the neural pathways that might've been wow. damaged with, uh, with blast or chronic sleep deprivation and, yeah. and exposure to stress. So, yeah. uh, very pragmatic. So even if you're, if you're a non-believer from like a psycho spiritual standpoint, and I could tell you after you take medicine, uh, uh, that capacity, a lot of people are believers yeah. afterwards because it's hard to kind of hard not to be, but, uh, even just for the physical healing benefits. I mean, I yeah. have had friends that have come off all of their opiates, all of their anti-anxiety and sleep meds, um, friends that were addicted to alcohol and, and hardcore opiates like heroin, um, and have found sobriety. Um, yeah. I began as one of the most prolific addi- addiction disruptors mm-hmm. that exists. Um, I mean, 
I'm not, a, I, I wasn't a heroin addict by, or anything like that, but you know, I've heard stories about, you know, people strung out on heroin for 20 years coming through and, and having clarity as if they've been sober for three months afterwards. And uh, yeah, talk about giving people a second chance. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a beautiful opportunity and it's done in community too. Right. I mean, like, you know, guys go down in a group of, you know, four to six people. Okay. And uh, where do you go? Where do you, where do you fly into? Yeah. I mean, a lot of guys are flying into San Diego and, and then, you know, heading in a, a bus or a car kind of over the border to a, you know, a house, you know, okay. very safe, very controlled. And, you know, the house is where the treatment is there. And it's, and it's, you know, it's held in a kind of a ceremonial construct, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just like a sterile medical environment, but mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of great connection, man. I mean, like the, the openness, you know, guys sharing and guys feeling comfortable sharing mm -hmm. and, uh, and just being there in community again, man, it's like, it's kind of, Man. a regalvanization of the bonds that you had, you know, during service yeah. overseas, kind of coming full circle to address the suppressed emotion. Um, cause that, that's why I've seen that more, probably more than any other thing. You see guys that have been numb to, uh, embracing emotion for yeah. 20, 30 years. Yeah. Like finally feeling for the first time wow. and, and realizing I mean, it's scary. I mean, it feels like, feels like you're, you're kind of losing control, right? Cause you're finally kind of allowing yourself to, to feel again. Yeah. It's yeah. One of the most beautiful things I've been in, involved with. I mean, frankly, it, it's uh, the most fulfilling work that I'm doing and I don't get mm. paid. <laughs> I don't get paid for it because I don't need to, man. The yeah. payment comes in the form of, you know, a hug from a friend, a conversation, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's awesome. <laughs> were you nervous? And when you went across, did you know the people you were going with, or, you know, a couple of them, or do you know all of them? Already? I was fucking terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get on the, you're, I picture it, you're getting in the van and you're heading down to, to TJ. Um, did you know any of those guys or had you, or did you uh, like meet up for the first time in, in Sandog and then head across? Yeah. Yeah, you typically don't really know. Right. I mean, they, they take confidentiality pretty seriously, which yeah. is awesome. Right. Cause I mean, everybody's doing different yeah. things. Right. And for some people, um, you know, they, they just need, they need that. But, mm. um, yeah, you, you, you end up, I mean, it's, so you crazy. go across like, and you're like looking around, like, and then you pull up in front of this house. Oh, like, yeah. All right. I you're mean, just like, all yeah, right, here we go. You're right. And especially if you're going down, I mean, Mexico, te technically, you go into TJ, you're like, dude, this is very reminiscent of like Iraq. Mm. You know, it's, I don't know, like your spidey senses are going off and all that stuff. So like, it definitely is a little unnerving. Yeah. And you know, more times than I've gone and supported, right. Just kind of as a, okay. a veteran supporter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, more times than not, I know at least one or two people that are down there. Mm. Um, and it's always amazing, you know, it, they'll be like, it'll be random, like a guy that I've known forever, but haven't seen in a decade. Yeah. And he's down there and he's dealing with the same shit that we're all dealing with. And, he you know, the level of comfort, man, that that derives, that's yeah. derived from seeing a friendly face yeah, and especially a friendly face from somebody that you trust, right. That yeah. you respect from the community that is also going through the same thing or has yeah. gone through it. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, that's, it's amazing. I mean, I think the, com the community part of it and the connection that is derived or is being kind of born again mm -hmm. is, is a major part of kind of the impact. I mean, that's probably why we're seeing the, the effects that we're seeing, yeah. you know, or guys, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, 
guys are truly finding joy and, and purpose in their life again. Yeah. And then you pull up in front of this house and you go in, how long is it before <laughs> you uh, take your, do you, and you use it oral or how do you do it? Is it an IV or what are they, how do they do it? Yeah. I, Ibogaine is administered orally. So it's in capsule form. Um, yeah. And, and you're probably taking it that evening. So that evening. let's so say you there. show up on a, a Friday, you're kind of doing, I mean, they're doing the regular kind of risk mitigation, you know, your analysis, you want mm -hmm. to make sure people, they're used to dealing with the addiction community, right? So uh, if somebody is addicted, they want to make sure that they're not on a contraindicated opiate or something that could actually cause harm. Um, you're getting like the heart rate monitor, you're getting doing another e, e, uh, uh, EKG to make sure that your heart is healthy. Um, Ibogaine has some cardiac, uh, you could cause some cardiac issues if you're unhealthy or you have a pre-existing condition. So okay. it's not something to take lightly. It's yeah. not like this is a, hey, get your hands on some Ibogaine and, and go administer it to yourself. Like it needs yeah. to be medically supervised. And then, um, you know, the the retreat usually kicks off with, you know, some, you know, sharing. I mean, like people are sharing kind of intentions for the medicine experience and what they want to get rid of, you know, what they want to achieve, hmm. you know, what, you know, and then. As a then, group or with like a one-on-one -on -one person? In I a, mean, as a, as a group, I mean, nothing okay. forced, but I mean, there is a lot of open, open sharing, you know, and it's very comfortable and it's all in confidence. And, um, and then, you know, guys will take medicine that evening. Um, okay. and I begin, it will be kind of administered and you'll, you'll kind of be in it that probably for eight to 12 hours. I mean, the peak is probably for four, you know, it probably comes on in the first hour. And then for the next three to four hours, you're in like a peak visionary state where you're not really going anywhere. You're just kind of hanging out and you're, you're kind of, you're, you're being in, like taught uh, <laughs> the things that you need to focus on or address in your life. And um, are you talking to somebody or are you like just no, lying so down? Very, yeah. It's, you look at the room of, of guys on Ibogaine and it's, so you're all in the room together for the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, typically, I mean, different providers have different structures, but you know, the ones that I've supported, it's, you know, mattresses on the ground in a big room and you're not communicating, you know, it's all, it's a very internal experience. Yeah. And then, you know, coming out of it the next day, it's a, it's an introspection day. Um, so there's therapists available to be able to connect with and talk to, you know, friends to talk to. And then are you tired because uh, you've been up all night or is it like, yeah, like, well, it's a, I begin to stimulant too. This is crazy thing. So like at lower doses, I began is like, it's like the best espresso, probably caffeination that you can have. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's a, it's a different stimulant. I mean, uh, indigenous people, I think have used it kind of to go hunt and mm. stuff. They'll take like a low, like a mm. micro dose of Ibogaine mm. to kind of sharpen their senses and, and allow them to be more alert. At a large dose, it's visionary, right? It becomes ataxia, visions, the whole deal, and it's a major stimulant. So, like, yeah, you're you're up basically for at least twenty four hours. Some people are up for like forty eight hours. I mean, depending on how you metabolize it. Wow. And uh, the next night is typically when when guys will get good sleep, and with the sleep comes, it's kind of like a reset. I mean, talk about it's like being. Uh, it's like the universal soldier ice bath. Like okay. you just got, you just got laid down and you get back up. And like, I mean, I personally, I'm like, I had things that were achy or not working appropriately in my, my joints I felt great. You know, I felt amazing. Mm. Uh, the nor it gets, uh, metabolized into noribogaine. It's usually stored in kind of liver and fatty tissue mm. for like up to six months afterwards. So like you kind of get like this beautiful drip of like this, you know, neurogenesis kind of uh producing compound that's that's just kind of like 
in your body for a while. So huh. it's for brain health, you know, TBI. Uh, I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, I think that's the reason people are so interested in it. I think there might be nothing else out there that is, you know, as prolific um, to help kind of stimulate that healing. Cause like we focus so much outside of the brain, mm. you know, we have orthopedic surgeons and heart mm. surgeons and all this stuff, but um, it's a, yeah, amazing tool to help with concussive injury. And uh, yeah. And then the following day you'll, you know, people typically sit with five MEO DMT, which is much different experience. Uh, very short. So a different you know, probably, thing, different, take another different thing, psychedel oral, different psychedelic the next. So yeah, you do it one night, then you have a night, a, a day and you're still yep. in this house and you're still, still in the house and hanging then, out. Then you have a, a, a night of sleep and then you get up and do this other psychedelic. Yeah. Individual sessions, kind of one-on-one -on -one with the provider. Um, huh. You know, 5-MeO is typically administered as a um, a vapor. So either synthetic in kind of a a, a pen, like a vape pen. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's smoked, right? Or uh, it can be torched, like like smoked um, from the ven. So crazy enough, right? This this secretion from uh, uh, the Colorado River toad or Sonoran Desert toad, uh, these these little guys hibernate for most of the year and they go into kind of this meditative state underground and they produce this venom, this toxin in these glands. And, and part of that is, I mean, there's a bunch of alkaloids like bufotenine and a couple other things, but 5-MeO-DMT is one of them. And don't ask me how the first guy that ever figured out how you, uh, you, you, so you milk a toad onto a piece of glass, dry it, and then torch it and smoke it. And you have a mystical experience of oneness and unity. Um, oh. and you touch God, uh, <laughs> like actually came about, but, uh, uh, oh. that compound is found in, in that animals that secretion now. And there's a lot of sensitivities around like, Hey, um, you know, conservation of those animals, not harming them and all that. I mean, like it's, it's, it's one method of, of kind of, uh, administering that, that particular uh -huh. psychedelic, but, um, it's vaporized. Uh -huh. It's very fast acting, you know, within, I mean, five seconds or so it basically takes, it takes away total control for most people. Unless oh, really? you are re so yeah, are you like in I a mean, padded room? Or are you still with these other, other people in this room? <laughs> like, are you worried at the, like, I mean, about I losing mean, control. Yeah, no, a controlled environment as in like you have a provider there that's going to, that's obviously, you know, holding the medicine for you. And then you, you know, people there that are there holding space, you know, to basically sit there, not to interact, but basically make sure you're safe and, yeah. and taken care of. Um, and, and not to share kind of the personal experience because like, uh, you know, for each person it's different, different. but yeah. you know, I, it, it can be, you know, I've I've had ex I've had experiences. I've I've touched kind of near death before, and and it's it's very very similar for me. It was very similar to kind of what I had touched in kind of a real kind of brush mm -hmm. with death. And uh, I frame it as, you know, melting away everything that doesn't matter mm -hmm. in this life, everything. And I know you can think about that. And it's a, you could be an, it can be a thought, a conscious thought exercise of, okay, what really matters to me, but it, it truly melts everything away. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of guys, and this may say very, sound very cliche, very Hallmark card esque, but like it, it ends up being like love, like all about love. Mm -hmm. Like 
And, and, and in that experience, I mean, I've, I mean, I, I could tell you from personal experience that like I walk away understanding can that love is the universal truth and whoever made that up is absolutely right. And, uh, you know, trying to find that in your life, I mean, it ends up being a pretty powerful tool and, and you feel it viscerally brother, like mm -hmm. it, it is not for the light of heart. Like yeah. it literally like evaporates all, uh, <laughs> all sense of I, and you are just, you are just being with this very, very stark realization that, you know, that love is pretty much all that matters. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, guys have very cathartic experiences. It can be very challenging as can I begin. Um, that's why you have therapists <laughs> there to help you kind of work through it. And, and frankly, I think you have friends that have been through it that can help you work through it. And, and, you know, and, I'm, and one of the biggest honors I've personally had is, you know, either being there on site to support or, or at least being, you know, I live in San Diego with my family. So, um, to be a resource, to be there for guys coming back that, yeah. you know, that want to connect and, um, yeah, yeah, really amazing and beautiful time spent with guys, you know, some guys that I didn't even really know that well, uh -huh. um, I've heard of maybe that were like kind of legendary from our community yeah. that, you know, have gone through and to share time with them in that, in this like rebirth and reawakening wow. is like, yeah, pretty nothing, nothing more valuable. I mean, outside of like my kids <laughs> and my mm -hmm. wife, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, pretty, wow. pretty remarkable experience. dude, I just feel blessed to be part of a small part of it. And yeah, Man, fills me with a lot of love. <laughs> Man. What's the, uh, what's the ride back to San Diego? Like you get back in the van. Uh, oh, bro. What's that like? Are you like, what's up? Dude? I mean, <laughs> mo for most of the guys, it's like, I mean, after the second experience, uh -huh. it's, I mean, the two are kind of, it, they are very perfect in kind of conjunction because mm. I began can be a very like leveling, like, oh man, this is heavy. Mm. Cause you're like dealing with some shit. A lot of guys are dealing with, I mean, it's, it can be combat related stuff, but a lot of it is like just early childhood stuff. Mm. Dude, just like, I think a lot of guys from our community are like, we have this innate ability, ability to compartmentalize emotion really well. Mm. Well, how did we get there? Typically, it's because we learned how to compartmentalize emotion really well because we dealt with adversity early in life. Mm. And that adversity early on in life has given us this like superpower to become like binary tools to perform at a very high level under stress. Mm. So I began can un unleash some major shit and it, wow. it can be heavy. 5-MEO is typically kind of an end cap and it, and it really kind of shows people what, what reality is um, mm. and allows them to kind of like, kind of like start to like embed some of like the, the beauty of the experience. And okay. I, I, on the way back, I mean, yeah, you typically guys are just like all smiles. I mean, they, there's a, there's a physical difference from the ride in, in to the ride back. Oh, yeah, the ride in is like, guys, like <laughs> uncomfortable shop talk. I mean, a lot yeah. of talk. I mean, it's crazy. A lot of talk about like, oh yeah, man, I remember on that deployment and uh, yeah. whatever. And they try like they want you like don't talk about shop. You're like prepping for like a very pivotal life changing experience. Yeah. Like just don't do that. But very very like reserved. Yeah. Uh, obviously, people are if they're not nervous, they're lying. Mm -hmm. You know, guys are typically like, I did. I'm scared shitless. Like, dude. Uh -huh. I, you know, I've had friends that have like faced like serious shit overseas with me and they tell me like, yeah, dude, it's the real deal. Like stand by. I feel like you're um, headed to a target. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, 
coming home, it's like kind of a different, it's just people are happy. I mean, you can look at people's eyes and it's amazing, man. I mean, there is a, a significant difference in the, and, and again, hard to put it into words. Yeah. The, the way that people's eyes look after coming mm. back and not from like a stone standpoint or a mm. dilated pupil standpoint, there's like a brightness to people's eyes and their faces and, and their, I mean, mm. dude, you can tell man, right? Like you, when you, you can, there's people are producing AI, right. That read facial expressions and eye expressions and all that stuff. And they can tell if someone's lying or if they're, you know, happy or sad yeah. or suicidal mm. and, uh, Dude, the lightness and brightness that you see, I mean, it's like you, you like three decades of of weight has been lifted off of their heart. Yeah. And um yeah, guys, yeah, guys are guys are better for it, man. I mean, it gave me my life back. And yeah. um the number of friends from our community that feel the same way and have mm. taken their life back and are living, you know, joyful lives is too many to count at this point. Wow. So what is, uh, when you walked in the door, when you get home, um, and you, you drive up to the house and walk in, is your wife there kind of like, what, like what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's walking back in this door? You know, we, what, you know, we like? had dinner with my Maura and I, my wife and I had dinner with some friends the other night and they, they actually asked that question to her. Cause it's, I always sit back and just listen. I shut yeah. my mouth and listen. She said that. I, when I came back and obviously she's like, I don't, she didn't know what to expect. Yeah. Am I going to be a different person for the worse or whatever? I, she describes it as uh, she got the person that she started dating in high school back again. And she describes me from high school. And I have a hard time remembering myself this way as a loving, comparing, uh, compassionate, uh, caring, um, happy individual, like very like, I mean, I guess you'd say like mm. very touchy feely. Like I used to mm. tell her like how much I loved her. And like, mm. I mean, she, it's embarrassing to a certain degree. I mean, I guess I'm not embarrassed anymore, but like, yeah, I used to leave like voice, uh, <laughs> voicemails, answering mm. machine messages. Yeah, I'm yeah. dating myself on her home answering machine. And it were like professions of love as we were oh. dating. <laughs> yeah. like a high school hey, senior. That's great. And, and guess what? When they play that on answering machines, it wasn't private. It's yeah. like she pressed the play button oh. and the whole house, all of her sisters, her <laughs> mom and dad heard it. And like, but I, I, dude, I forgot about that shit. Like I wasn't, I don't even, I didn't even remember being that version of myself. Yeah. And yeah, man, I mean that, that's probably the biggest, the best testimonial for this stuff is, you know, my, my wife feels like she, she has me back. Um, the way that, that she, the person she fell in love with. Oh man. 20, 20 plus years ago. That's awesome. That is awesome. Have, did you hear of anybody having a uh, the opposite experience, like before you went down or even now, like not having a good one that made you either uh, kind of question going down, be a little more nervous about going down uh, or uh, take a little more caution or look into it a mm. little more? Like, does anyone have not the physical side, you know, the heart pre-existing condition or have beyond some other drug or whatever else, but does, uh, does anyone ever have uh, not a positive experience from going to do this? Oh, yeah. I'd say a lot of people do, mm. um, but it's it's crazy. S tough experience, difficult experience is uh, not synonymous with a bad experience, Got in it. my opinion. Got so it. bad would be that there's no change enacted. There's nothing that has come from it. Mm -hmm. It could be weeks, months. It could be years later. Mm. Um, but in the moment, oh, yeah. I mean, I've... <laughs> 
I've supported friends that did not have a a pleasant experience. And it's not just the physical side effects. I mean, like people can purge like vomit and stuff on Ibogaine because it can get pretty gnarly. Mm. But just from like the the um, the intensity of the emotion that you experience. I mean, there's mm. there's friends that have dealt with like kind of early childhood abuse um that was suppressed. Uh there's a lot of guys struggle with a, a release or a relinquishing of control. You know, we are we are controlling individuals generally um, from our community. <laughs> We'd like to retain control. Uh, that's good to a certain point, but you know, guys will will hold on with a death grip in some of these experiences. Yeah, and I can see that. You know, and it's and it's hard. Like you can't. It's one thing to say, "Hey, man!" Like this is the advice that I hear some some people. All you got to do is let go. Yeah, you know what? You can't just <laughs> let go. It's not yeah. something that you can you're not consciously there to say, let go. You have to physically, like subconsciously, and I guess spiritually in a way, kind of be brought to your knees to a point where you finally surrender. Like you finally and, and some of that comes with some pretty intense pain. And maybe mm-hmm. not physical pain, but like the the emotional pain of addressing something in your life where, you know, maybe it could be something like the, a lost relationship with a child, you know, you know, a lot of guys in our community go through divorce. A lot of guys have rough, rough relationships, you know, kind of had lost contact with kids or, or, you know, spouses or exes. And I mean, it could be something as deep as, you know, confronting, you know, their role in that or, mm. you know, trying to kind of reconcile time lost or trying to kind of deal with, a situation that maybe they were culpable or accountable for, and it was too painful for them in the moment to 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 accept accountability for it, and and that kind of shit can be very hard, right? Yeah. And um, and you know, trying to reframe that and find the positive in that can can be tough, and, and that's the importance of like having a good trauma trained therapist that's on the back end, and 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 having an environment where connection is applauded, mm-hmm. um, not ridiculed, is is important. But I, I tell you, yeah, I mean, a lot of tough, difficult experiences, but I don't know, man, if I've, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I've ever would frame any of the experiences from people that have shared with me as bad. Um, cause even the toughest ones, um, you know, I watch All people right. flourish, you know? So even the quote, you know, like the, the tough experiences down there, um, end up being healthy for them mentally. Oh yeah. Yeah. Health. It te- definitely. I mean, like, so I guess that's more my question. About, like, is it, are any of these things, do you have any experience with any of these being unhealthy in the long term? I mean, there's probably, if it, there, there probably are instances out there. So yeah. I never would right. kind of say it I mean, as a cautionary measure. Mm-hmm. Like these are, this is a serious endeavor, right? Mm-hmm. This is not recreational. You don't go, you're not going down to take Ibogaine Ooh. and smoke five MEO DMT mm-hmm. uh, because you're, you just want to go do something. Um, yeah, I, I'd say that, you know, people do, they probably have tough experiences, but you know, the, the difficult, I think the difficult nature, I mean, Hey, look at our, our, our upbringing in the SEAL community, right? The selection process, mm-hmm. you go through a terrible thing to galvanize crazy commitment and bonds mm-hmm. and, and a sense of fraternity and love that, that is incalculable. And you have to kind of, you kind of, kind of have to touch darkness and touch deep adversity to to feel growth. And I think the adversity that you feel in confronting the deepest fears 
that you have that you don't even know you're not confronting. It drives growth like nothing else I've ever seen or experienced in my entire life. And, and it's a blessing. And I think other people would flame. There's other people that had gnarly tough experiences that frame it as like, I needed that. Yeah. Like that sucked. That was terrible. I don't know if I want to recommend it. Cause it's like wishing it's like recommending torture to like your friend kind of like, Hey, yeah, yeah you should do this. It's going to be gnarly, but they're like, I'm better for it. I needed it. I needed mm. to get hit in the head. Man. So, man, and then what do you do afterward to kind of keep things, uh, things going once you get home and, uh, like what's the, like the next day and interacting with your kids the next month, the next year, like what's that path like? Yeah. I mean, Hey, like this, uh, connection, uh, like openness connection, talking to friends, you know, staying kind of keeping that channel open, mm -hmm. right? Keeping that vulnerable, connected version of yourself open, um, I think is critical, right? Because mm -hmm. you can fall back into the same patterns easily um, if you don't put yourself in the right environment. Yeah. And then the follow-on stuff is just like prioritizing, man, like realizing what's valuable in life and what matters and like what you're going to be thinking about on your deathbed. Uh, I think it's reframed death for me. I mean, I'm, you know, I death motivates me to live in the present and and death is a beautiful thing it's a ceremony in and of itself and uh and if you live life fully and you embrace love and 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 connection and you don't fear your entire life you know when you're when you're ready to kind of take that next step and you transition to wherever we transition you know, i think you feel comfortable with it so i think that it's such a healthy reframing of death and life for me and uh yeah, bro. I mean, I think the, the, I meditate a lot uh, all the time now. I mean, it's, that is a daily practice for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of a mandatory practice and it's, it's actually something that is a common part of our household now. I mean, like it's colder outside. So like, I literally like, I have my little meditation cushion, like in the back room and my kids are like, I have put, I'll put on headphones or whatever, but like they'll come in and they're like walking around doing whatever they're doing in the morning and dad's just sitting on his meditation cushion <laughs> in silence, uh, not moving for 20 minutes and they'll, they'll play with me and stuff. And I've actually, it's like actually uh, been good for that practice uh -huh. is to deal with interruption and distraction <laughs> in a positive way because it's like, dude, <laughs> meditation's no good if you're just, if you're only in that <laughs> space in the 20 minutes and then uh -huh. as soon as you're done, you're like, swearing at your kids and like <laughs> drinking and slapping your wife. Yeah. Like if you can't take that mindset into the world around yeah. you, then no, I would think it, yeah, I think it would be calming. If you're putting that practice in every day, it would seem like, uh, you're, uh, you're taking things seriously now, uh, uh across the board and, uh, applying that to the rest of your, of your day totally. in your life. Totally. Dude. Yeah. yeah. Simple stuff, dude. Simple practices every single day. It's nothing, there is no magic pill. It takes hard work. Mm -hmm. um, you do it every single day and I'm not perfect by any means. I trip and I fall, but at least I'm aware of it. Mm. I'm aware of the areas that I'm faltering. And I think awareness is where we, I think we lack awareness. I mean, mm. and that's, that's kind of the critical thing. So like when you start to become more aware, you can, you can make, make mistakes and when you start and, and make corrections. And when you start, when you start to actually like practice self-love finally, you know, you can forgive yourself for making those mistakes and, and take a step in the right direction again. Yeah. Man. 
And so let's uh, talk about vets. Like what's going on? Uh, what do you, what do you guys do? How do you guys get in, uh, how do people get in touch with you and all the, all the rest of that? Yeah. So, Hey, so this is the logo. I see, it. You, yep. see it. you find it. So, uh, vetsolutions.org is the website, uh, run by Marcus and Amber Capone and a bunch of other great guys. I mean, I actually have a close friend of mine from the seal teams that's running as like their CFO now. Nice. Um, uh, Henry, a shout out to you. Um, but they are, you go on the website. I mean, right now, uh, because a big push for the organization is political advocacy mm. to get this available for everybody. Right. Mm. And then uh, research to help support all these efforts to kind of get this stuff medically legalized and provide it for more people. Um, it's relegated now kind of to the special operations veteran community. Um, now there, there are kind of like uh, opportunities sometimes to kind of make exceptions, but uh, obviously funds are limited, right? Mm. They're a small grassroots nonprofit. Yeah. They'd love to be able to offer this to every combat veteran. Uh, and it's actually in line with my earlier comments about, you know, conventional army infantry and yeah. Marine Corps infantry. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, some of my best friends, they, they, did, they deserve this more than anybody else. And, uh, uh, you know, there, there is hopefully a path to that, but there is opportunities, uh, through vets for an exception. And, you know, ideally, you know, there, this is going to be made available via the VA at some point, you know, I know ketamine is actually a modality that is being used in, in, in the VA medical system. Um, ketamine is a psychedelic ex experience. I mean, mm. it's actually a dissociative and it's an anesthetic mm. typically, but, um, ketamine is amazing tool for, you know, kind of pressing the pause button on suicidal ideations. And then, you know, we'll see where like MDMA assisted psychotherapy and then, uh, psilocybin assisted therapy uh starts to progress in the upcoming years i mean mm. mdma is actually through phase three yeah. and there, there's a good chance that it could be medically legalized so vets mm. is a resource there um outside of like actually grants you know there's educational materials to, to kind of help get you boned up on psychedelics as a whole um therapeutic resources yeah just amazing stuff so uh i can't thank marcus and amber enough for what they're doing there you know he's he was like one of the first people to go through ibogaine and yeah. uh i think there's hundreds probably i don't even know i probably miss uh misrepresent but it's probably north of seven eight hundred wow. uh guys okay. from the combat veteran community that have been been through now and wow. changing lives giving people their lives back and there's probably a lot of families that are thankful for it at this wow. point amazing Amazing. Well, let's talk about Protect right here. I mean, yeah, I'm drinking it right here. I'm drinking my hydration. So this is, uh, yeah, I've been rocking the, the hydration ones, but there's a whole, whole bunch of them. Look, I got the energy one right here, but really I'm just these days rocking the coffee and the hydration ones. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Right here. I got the <laughs> lemonade one right here. Um, here we go. Another energy right there. Uh, mixed berry. And then got these guys over here. Um, yeah, the brain function, clarity, performance, mushroom blend, yep. and, uh, the watermelon primer, and then got some sunscreen right here. Yeah. Also. So what's uh, how did this all come about? How did you get into this? Was this one of the many entrepreneurial ventures that you, uh, explored or how did you, uh, yeah. how did this come well, about? I mean, I, I mean, I would tell you that it's, it's very in line with kind of the last whatever hour and a half or that, that we've been talking about kind of this this path towards mental health wellness mm -hmm. and, and, you know, kind of the psychedelics and everything else, you know, it's all about daily practice, right. And, and simple, uh, easily replicable routines. And 
the, you know, the genesis of Protect was really to give people tools to galvanize simple routines in their life. And the two kind of routines, you know, you asked, like, what did I do afterwards, long tail, to really uh, keep the change mm -hmm. that was catalyzed through your psychedelics? It was improving hydration uh, because there's a whole cascade of positive effects that come with being well hydrated mm -hmm. uh, and putting the right kind of electrolytes in your water. And then sleep, right? Uh, actually, the hydration is like a critical node, along with like morning sunlight and a couple of other things to really galvanize better sleep. You know, the only sleep. thing that I'm doing that you're talking about that's healthy is this hydration stuff right here. Everything else, oh, bro. it's get up and it's go, go, go. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start incorporating some other things in here at some point. But the, <laughs> but, uh, but also a surprise. So the first time you sent me some was, I want to say a year and a half ago. Sure. Maybe. Yep. Um, but I, when I took it out initially, I was like, oh, liquid. You know, yeah, because um, yep. because you know the the ones that I've been used to before are powder. You know, you put them in powder in your water bottle yep. and you shake it up or whatever. But these are a liquid like this, and yep. uh, you just tear the top off right there, and then into the into your water bottle or whatever you you know whatever you have. Um, but uh, yeah, how did this come? How did you like? How did you think liquid, and then the ingredients, and then the business, and everything else involved yep. with Protag? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the, the concept came out of that, that simple need to kind of give people the, the tools so they mm -hmm. can kind of create these habits that are actually going to move the needle. Yeah. Um, so hydration and sleep, and then, you know, just looking at like, Hey, you know, electrolytes, uh, are not a new product, right? There's a lot of electrolyte products out there. There's a lot of great products. It, they are typically in powder stick packs. So, mm. you know, powder can be messy, it clumps, um, you can't, you have to take it with you in, in, in a tub, or if you're taking stick packs, you know, you got to mix it with water. Uh, we wanted something that mixed seamlessly, uh, cold or hot, you know, we're a lot of outdoorsmen involved in the company. Um, and, you know, time spent outside, you know, trying to give people a very simple, effective mm -hmm. solution to be able to throw in their pocket. Yeah. Um, so if it's, you know, you can take it, you know, you're carrying a, a bladder or some bottles on your person. If you're out, you know, doing a long burn endurance activity, you're camping, fishing, hunting, you know, you can throw these stick packs that are liquid in a pocket. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you need electrolytes, you can, you can, you, you know, put move. the right electrolytes in your system. Yeah, you can just... and, and dude, you could do it. It's, uh, the electrolytes are tougher. I mean, I, frankly, the, the energy, uh, granted, we want people putting them in water because the, the improved hydration yeah. is, I, I is didn't thought tool. of doing it just like, you know, by itself, <laughs> that'd be pretty powerful, I think. Right. Pretty powerful, but you can do it if you need to. I mean, I, I think it's actually a pretty effective delivery system for the energy. Um, okay. And the energy is a super clean uh, caffeine. So it's yeah. not synthetic. It's like derived from organic green coffee bean. So this it gives right you like a real, it's a really even kind of well metered uh, caffeination. And like, I, I mean, everybody on the team will be like, Nick, shut your mouth. Don't tell people to slam these okay. things. But like, I, hey, I, you I can. love it. Like, okay, dude. My car right now, like if you went into my my SUV, like I literally have like five stick packs of energy just like in the center console. Okay. And like before I go climb, yeah. Like caffeine is like the number one performance enhancing drug for like physical performance. Huh. You know, talk about like if I had to pick one tool for like my climbing, yeah, it would be actually it's it's like protect energy stick pack right now. Like okay. I literally I don't take it until I'm like warmed up and ready to start like pulling really hard on a boulder problem. Um, okay. and I, it focuses me, you know, I'm, 
you know, I feel energetic and, and like I did the focus and the muscle coordination is, is critical. So try talk about like getting your brain firing. I mean, I know you, you can attest to it. I mean, being uh, an author, right? Like getting your brain firing and having that creativity in that it's, it's important. You know, I'm going to do one of these tomorrow morning instead of, instead of coffee and see what, uh, cause I, like I said, I've been doing the hydration mostly, uh, I've done the other ones as well, just to test them out and everything. But I thought, because I'm not really, you know, out there right now running and doing all this stuff, you know, working out, um, I'm typing, I haven't really tried it in that, but I'm gonna try it tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to do the, uh, I'll mix it in water for the rest of the team. <laughs> I'm going to mix it in yeah. water and, uh, and do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, these, these packs are tough too for because when I initially totally. got them, I'm like, oh, it's going to break in my pack or something. Uh, and that has not happened. These like these are tough packs right here, whatever you make. Totally, brother. Well, especially like the the hydration you're holding and all the packages now. If like you opened up the box, the mixed berry box of energy that you have on your desk, mm-hmm. like they're they're all the uh, they're all those liquid stick packs. So the packaging is now kind of like all gravitated towards those like kind okay. of thin, right narrow here. stick packs. Okay. I. I am pretty confident you can like crush that thing and it's not opening yeah. up and, yeah. and it, and it's important, right? If you're out with a ruck on and you're mm-hmm. out in the field, the last thing you want to do is have a bunch of sticky liquid, like <laughs> all over the bottom of your stuff on your optics, like yeah, your, yeah. your weapon, whatever. Um, they're very durable. I mean, they were built for somebody that's an outdoor enthusiast in mind. Like yeah. you want, you want something that is a tool, uh, and an asset, not a liability. So that's, that's how the packaging evolved and seems to work well. People like it and yeah. kind of the whole lineup of supplements has been geared towards improving kind of mental well-being. you yeah. know, focusing on kind of brain health, cognitive health, because, you know, there's a lot of things you can do for just physical health and wellness, but, um, you know, we don't look at our brain, uh, very often. We don't look at our emotional no. health and our cognitive function and, and we're trying to move the needle there. Yeah. No, man. And who's, who's on the team with you on this? Uh, so a bunch of people, but, uh, uh, Mark Healy is a hunter, big wave surfer. Uh, my brother-in-law, Tim Duba, uh, Naval Academy grad. And then, uh, Andrew Pouch, another Naval Academy grad, EOD officer, uh, and you know, a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, nice. folks, teams growing and, nice. uh, yeah, just a lot of wonderful things ahead. A lot of great, uh, interconnection with, I think a lot of the companies that, you know, like, yeah. uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company has been uh, a big supporter of us and nice. continue to be a supporter. Oh, cool. So we love those guys, uh, whatever cool. we can do to support them and everything they're doing. Um, you know, folks over at Yeti have been amazing to nice. us. Uh, you know, we're, we're over at Sitka, nice. you know, Jonathan Hart, I know is a mutual friend of ours mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he's become a good friend and a huge advocate for us. So like, awesome. I, yeah, it's all about the community, right. And it's about how people helping each other and, you know, it's it's truly been embodied like this venture this company uh has really kind of shown us that there's a lot of other veteran-led organizations that um are really there to help each other and you know i'd like to see like to see more and more of that i mean every opportunity there is to kind of help another veteran-led company um you know we we want to do it and and there's been a lot of people that have helped us along the way across multiple ventures that i've been involved with and uh and I want to thank you too, brother. I mean, from inception, uh, as I kind of uh, was looking at different entrepreneurial ventures, uh, even before you were the author of the terminal list, you were opening up your network, introducing me to people that you've been close friends with, that you trust and respect. And uh, yeah, man, 
I mean, I can't say thank you enough. You Man. you have been a you have been a good friend, never looking for anything uh, to be reciprocated, and just have given uh, freely and wholly um, every single time, man. I've asked, so I I truly appreciate it, uh, and you continue to do that every single day, bro. So like, uh, I I can't say thank you too many times. Oh man, I appreciate that. Thank you. you know, I, I always want to always want to help good people. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your support and friendship over the years, and for sharing this experience right here. I mean. It, you know, it, it, that's what's one of the great things about um, about having living in a time where we have podcasts and you have social media. Like, there's yeah, there's a lot of negatives to it as well because you see a lot of negativity, and if you, even totally. if you try to ignore it, it's still there, and that part is unhealthy. Um, and but there are things like this also uh, where uh, somebody can listen to this and uh, get in contact with you guys and uh, and change their life or, or save their life through, uh, through your experience totally. and you sharing that experience. So, um, so thank you so much for, uh, for doing that. Um, and uh, it's P R O T E K T dot com. Dot com. Um, so people can, <laughs> people can check, uh, can check that out and follow you on the social channels and, and do all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, man, Dude, thank you so much for, uh, for, this is my favorite part of doing a podcast is that we get to do this. Cause even when you came out here and yeah. you know, you're, you have the sprinter van that you have, you're testing out and the family's totally. here and it's chaos. And we have, we have what, like <laughs> kids in the driveway on motorcycles and like what a little guy went down right as you're coming in. And like, it's just go, 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 go all the time. But this like forces me to put the phone down, put it on airplane mode. There's yeah, no bro. text messages. There's no emails. You know, I'll, I'll hit that stuff this afternoon. Um, but, uh, but it's a great way to be able to just hang out for a little bit. And we don't get to do that too much because we always have that device with us, Oh man, you know, especially know. if you're We're all- a business owner and you have to build and you have responsibilities and all that stuff. Like you're probably going to need to be attached to that thing a little bit. Um, but, uh, but this forces me to put it down and forces somebody else to put it down for a little bit and we get to get to hang out and catch up. So, um, man, so thank you so much for that and, uh, and, uh, for your inspiration and for everything that you're, you're doing there these days. And man, I'm looking forward to you coming back out here or seeing you next time I pass through (laughs) sand dog. Totally brother. Well, Hey, it's, it's awesome reconnecting. And yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy the conversation and, you know, for me, opportunities like this, man, it's, it is about kind of just sharing kind of the, the message that, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's always help, man. There's always resources. It's never, it's never okay to kind of check out because, uh, you know, there's always people there that love you and, and, and want to connect to help. So I, I offer myself out there. Uh, I'll put myself out there personally, you know, anybody listening to this, that, um, that is struggling, that's going through a dark time. Um, you can reach out to me, man, you know, hit me up on Instagram and and it's, it wouldn't be the first time, you know, I've, I've had total strangers reach out and I've become friends with some of those people that didn't know me from Adam. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, it fills me with a lot of joy and fulfillment to be uh, a lifeline for people and just be a point of connection. So yeah. I appreciate you Amazing. allowing me to oh. to do that. Oh, kidding me. Um, and what's your, what's your, um, Instagram? It's Nick Norris, 1981. You'll see my smiling, type in Nick Norris. You'll probably see my smiling face. I nice. Think, uh, Nick Norris, 1981. <laughs> and, uh, and then what's the, uh, the website for vets again? One more time. Uh, vetsolutions.org, um, is the website. And then if you see it, it's the, the cool it little red and blue logo. Yeah. That says vets. Um, nice. What is the yeah. red and blue logo? What are, what are those things? 
it's so it's kind of like a little uh it kind of representing kind of like neurogenesis right okay like, uh, like, like the connectivity so it's kind nice. of it's like re regenerating and rebuilding kind of like connection and wholeness you know nice. these little things coming back together again because we're all there right we might be broken up but all the pieces are there we just uh, put humpty dumpty back together again and uh uh that's why we look at it you know nobody is too far gone there's there's always a way to kind of regain control and and find joy and love in your life love it man love it i think that's a good way to to wrap things up man thank you so much appreciate everything and uh hopefully i'll be seeing you in person soon I look forward to it, brother. All right. Take care. We all know how finances can take a major hit during the holiday season. That's why you need to go to NavyFederal.org and check out everything that they have going on. I have been a member since 1996, and I could not be more pleased with how all of that has gone. Partner up with Navy Federal Credit Union to pay down credit card debt. You could get into low APR on balance transfers with their Platinum credit card. It's their lowest rate card, and it's a great tool to pay down debt. Navy Federal can even help get you started on your next home improvement project. They offer home equity line of credit with convenient access to funds when you need them at a variable rate. You can also get a fixed rate equity loan that has set monthly payments for large purchases. Consolidating debt with a home equity loan could also streamline and lower your monthly payments. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, where their members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Membership required. Loans subject to approval. Call 1-888-842-6328 for details about credit card costs and terms. H-E-L-O-C APR as low as 6.5% as of November 23rd, 2022. Black Rifle Coffee Company, the coffee that I drink every single day and powers me through my novels. Black Rifle Coffee Company set out on a mission to make the best cup of coffee that's ever hit your mug. The dream was to sell enough premium coffee to be able to build a support network for veterans, first responders, and law enforcement. Thanks to your support, all that dream has become a reality. Black Rifle Coffee is roasted by a veteran-led team of brilliant coffee graders here in the United States, who work tirelessly to roast and bag the highest quality coffee right here in America. The coffee is truly one of a kind, but it's your support that gets gear, funding, and supplies into the hands of those on our front lines. This year alone, your support has helped Black Rifle Coffee Company expand our team of active duty service members, veterans, and veteran family members. Black Rifle was also able to donate over 120,000 bags of coffee to veterans and first responders in 2022, all thanks to you. Purchase at BlackRifleCoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20. You can also find Black Rifle Coffee in grocery and convenience stores near you. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee. You know there are different grades of fuel for your vehicle, but did you know there's different grades of fuel for your mind? When your mind gets low-quality fuel, it gets easily distracted, fatigues quickly, and leaves you swamped in brain fog. But when it gets high-quality fuel that's packed with the electrolytes it needs to operate at optimal levels, your brain cells fire more quickly and efficiently, which keeps you focused, energized, and ready for anything. That's why Navy SEAL veteran Nick Norris created Protect Hydration. 
It's an electrolyte supplement that contains the optimal ratio of electrolytes your mind needs without any of the sugar, artificial sweeteners, or other junk. It doesn't. And people love it so much, it sold out three times in 2022. They just got some back in stock right now. Danger Close listeners can get 25% off. Visit Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T dot com slash Danger Close and start giving your mind higher quality fuel today. Once again, visit Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T dot com slash Danger Close for 25% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Have a few things to go through today, and they're all sitting on top of this badass workbench. So badass-workbench.com right here. I love this thing. It is solid, great crew out there. So thank you so much. And have the gators on my head right here. These are the Deltas. I'm absolutely loving the Deltas. I wore the Raptors for so many years, and uh, these Deltas, uh, I've been wearing these for the last few months. Love these things. So Gators, thank you. Let's see where to start. Probably with the Vickers Guide right here. If you followed me for a while, you know that the Vickers Guide series of books right here, they're my first stop when it comes to researching the weapons for my novels. Uh, and this is a new one right here, AR-15. This is volume two. And uh, this one is an expanded version of their last volume two. And it's got, look at this, uh, camo sleeve right there. And these things are just awesome. So Larry Vickers, James Rupley, he takes the photos for these and absolutely incredible. They all signed this for me. So thank you guys so much. Um, yeah, this is, if you don't have the Vickers Guide series, start collecting. They're awesome. All right, I'm going to put that over here. And yeah, I love this slipcase too. I mean, just love how much thought goes into everything that these guys do. It's amazing. All right, Len Waldron, man. Thank you for sending me this. This is really cool. Look at this. A Dangerous Game, a classic collection of African safari, hunting, and conservation by the legendary Robin Hurt. And uh, he signed it for me in here, which is very cool. And this is a gift from Len Waldron. Len is a writer and uh, did an article for Ballistic Magazine a couple years ago on guns of Savage Sun. And he was there when we opened the Hemingway typewriter that, uh, that uh, somebody gifted to me, which was Absolutely incredible. He wrote a movable feast on it, and Len was with me when we opened that together. So that's on Ballistic Magazine. You can go check it out, ballisticmagazine.com. We have a, a video and a few other things up there. So uh, thank you for thinking of me. This is, this is amazing. All right, what is next? Let's see. Winkler knives. So you've heard me talk quite a bit about the tomahawk that James Reese uses in the Terminal List series in all the novels and in the Amazon Prime video series starring Chris Pratt. But uh, look at this blade right here. That thing, that is serious. Uh, WinklerKnives.com, check them out. Also follow them on the social channels. And there's, this is a hollow a handle right here. She put survival stuff in there. And this thing is just solid. Just awesome. So thank you guys so much. Check out Winkler Knives and uh, yeah, add a few to the arsenal for sure. All right. American Zealot Productions. Uh, Rick Stewart over there. Been a friend for years. So Rick, thank you for sending this. American Zealot bourbon right here. Um, crafted with American conviction. Love it. So thank you so much. American Zealot Productions. Uh, let's see. This is really cool. So right here, 
This is a sheath, and it's from thholsters.com. Not a sheath, a holster from thholsters.com. And uh, this is a gift from Commando Bond. Uh, Caleb Daniels, uh, amazing. Commando Bond on Instagram, and he designed this holster for the Walther PPK, which is right here and uh, it's been really cool getting to know a lot of people that are uh from the bond fandom out there and so caleb uh thank you so much uh and i love that card by the way and this is pretty cool too even cooler uh so obviously this is sean connery and uh jill masterson played by shirley eaton who had her birthday yesterday as of this recording anyway um so very cool so thank you so much for that and uh yeah the Walther PPK always wanted one, so uh, finally added one to the arsenal. Speaking of arsenals, right here, okay, Rise Armament. So, risearmament.com, um, they sent this out, and they have some pretty sick triggers. Um, so, check them out, Rise Armament. Um, let's see here. Ooh, that's nice. Very cool. So thank you guys. This is pretty cool. You can check out. This is the Watchman, I believe. Yeah, this is the Watchman right there. And that's a pretty sick AR. And that trigger is nice. So can't wait to get it out there. Put it through the paces uh, at a course out of maybe Thunder Ranch. I love going out there. Check out uh, thunderranch.com as well because you, know, you have these things. Well, most important part is the training. So getting out to Thunder Ranch and seeing Clinton Heidi Smith out there, that's uh, always at the top of my list. So looking forward to running this out there. And you can get the triggers. And this is uh, one of the triggers right here from Rise. And this is the Blitz right there. So see that? You can drop that in. And that is a nice trigger. Um, looking forward to putting it through the paces. So Rise Armament, thank you guys so much. And this is a serious case that this thing came in as well. Awesome. Let's see. Bow. So this is my daughter's bow. And there we go, right here. This is a Hoyt, and this is the Eclipse. And of course, Sitka pattern right here. So Hoyt, thank you so much. And this was put together um, by Stick Sniper Archery, my friend Caleb Brewer out there in Tucson. So he built this up for me. And uh, Hoyt is, of course, just down the road here in Utah. And yep, that's the Eclipse. So Love that. And this is my daughter's bow, like I said. So we get out there and sling some arrows together, and it's nice to put the phones down and uh, everything else and just get out there and walk around and shoot some arrows at some 3D targets. So uh, Hoyt, thank you. Caleb Brewer, thank you. What else? Okay, so living up here in the mountains for Christmas, uh, my wife and daughter got exactly what they wanted. They got uh, Max tracks. So these are the Max Track minis. I have the larger traction boards in my truck, but uh, some smaller ones for my wife and daughter right here. Uh, so these are Max tracks, and they come in this pretty solid case that they can get also. But these are the minis, um, about half the size, I guess, of the, uh, the larger version that I have. So being up here in the mountains, in the snow, I don't know. People will probably correct me, but about 95% of the situations um, that uh, we find ourselves in up here can be solved with a shovel, which is in here, uh, max traps, and uh, a toe strap. So um, right here, nice size, and the case was really nice too. So they got just what they wanted for Christmas. I know they did. And here we go. This is the other part of what they got 
for Christmas. So uh, Factor 55 right here. And it was really cool. I ordered this, and uh, Factor 55, I guess they recognized my name, and they sent me some extras. So uh, thank you guys so much for uh, hats and shirts and everything else you put in there and the kind note that, uh, that you included as well. Uh, that, was, that was really cool and, uh, and a surprise. So thank you. But uh, what's in here? So toe strap on this side right here in the middle. There we go. They sell these kits too, which is nice. And then you can add to them, obviously, like I did. But uh, kinetic, kinetic strap as well right here i threw in uh some jumper cables uh of course it's always nice to have some duct tape or riggers tape right there uh it comes with a couple shackles right here and uh, some soft shackles as well um and here we go got this right here so this hitch link also in case you need it so yeah pretty solid kit and the bag is really nice as well. And then I added some things on this side. At some point, I want to have Mike Glover, one of the guys from Fieldcraft, come up and go through the vehicles, and we'll do a video of it. And uh, they can go through and check out everything that's in the vehicles and let us know um, what we should add or subtract or, or morph. But uh, headlamps, can never have too many headlamps. And here's the Petzl. I just ordered a bunch of these because um, I have them everywhere. I'm a headlamp person. So that's that right there. Got some flares in there. I threw in some matches for them right here. I threw in some uh, uh, mechanics gloves. These ones are some, they're, they're, they're lined a little bit for the, for the winter. Um, put a little road guard vest in case they want to go for a run on a military installation. Side of the road in case you, uh, you need that. Um, have signal panels that I'm adding to this as well. And in their cars, they have not just those flares, but these uh, little discs that uh, you press a button and it's um, battery powered for, uh, for signaling. And, and this shovel. So this shovel, and this is DMOS right here. So DMOSProShovelTools.com. This is the smallest one right here. And uh, I have a big shovel in the back of my truck, but for them, putting this uh, little small shovel in here and this obviously comes out and turns it into a shovel, but it fits nicely in here. I think it would fit the one size larger uh, shovel that they have as well. But um, yeah, pretty solid little kit. And of course they have uh, uh, some uh, jump starters in their car as well. Not just the jump jumper cables, but uh, something that can, can jumpstart their vehicles, jumpstart big diesels and run their computers and phones and all the rest of that as well. So just a kind of small, it's not too huge, uh, but it has everything you need, I think, to, um, you know, get you out of most situations up here where we live. So be prepared. All right. I think that is everything. So thank you guys so much. Appreciate everything. Take care out there. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Only the Dead hits shelves this spring. Go to officialjackcar.com, click on Only the Dead for a sneak peek and to pre-order. For more on Nick Norris, you can follow him on Instagram. That is Nick underscore Norris 1981. And for more on Veteran Solutions, go to Vet Solutions. Org. You can click to their social media. And for ProTech, go to P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Follow them on the social channels as 
well. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can click on shop for the merch and you can sign up for the newsletter there as well. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. <laughs>